welcome to Parenthood Pals. I'm Caleb Hoyer. And I'm Melissa Fight Johnson. And we're so excited to be having our first official episode. If you joined us for episode double zero, we <laughs> talked about uh, the 1989 film of Parenthood by Ron Howard. But now we are getting started on the main focus of this podcast, which is the NBC series that debuted in 2010. Uh, I could not be more excited. And we mentioned last time that we had a little bit of spoiler situations in episode double zero because we were making connections. But now going forward, we are spoiler free just discussing this episode. If you skipped episode double zero, let me give you a refresher on who we are. I'm Caleb Hoyer. I'm from a little town in Kansas called Pittsburgh, which is where I met Melissa. Uh, Melissa was my oldest sister's best friend. And over the years, we became friends ourselves. And now we're all friends. Just (laughs) one big, happy friend family. I moved to New York for college and have been in New York City ever since. But we have remained in touch. And one of the nice things about doing this podcast, especially during quarantine times, is that we get to have an excuse to be talking with each other all the time, watching TV together remotely. It's great in a time that can feel so isolating to have each other and to have the Braverman family also. Yes, that's so perfect. It really is such a comfort, both of those things, to be hanging out with one of my best friends and to spend time with this show. I don't know about all of you, (laughs) that all of you is very hopeful, Um, (laughs) but I don't know about other people, but when I get really invested in a show, it does feel like the characters are keeping me company. You know, it, it really does feel like they're people I know, that they're friends. And so this is such a lovely thing to do, especially, yeah, during a pandemic and, and times can be pretty scary. And this is the ultimate comfort TV show, I think. So I'm Melissa Fight Johnson. And I, uh, as Caleb said, grew up in Pittsburgh, Kansas. Only I stayed there a lot longer. I just moved away from there two years ago. And... <laughs> I didn't go very far. I went two hours away to Lawrence, Kansas, but it is my very favorite place. I've always wanted to live here, and now I'm here. Oh, and and uh, Caleb's sister, who he was talking about, lives here too. So that's really lovely. So when I come back and visit, I can get a lot of uh, visits in in one trip. Yeah. All the people I love. Oh, so wonderful. Also, if you skipped the very first episode... We did a quick little rundown of what our own family situations are. And throughout the podcast, as we welcome guests on to discuss this fictional family, we thought it would be a good idea to just tell everyone what our own families looked like. So I grew up with mother and father and two older sisters with whom I'm very close, love them. And thus far, I do not have any children. It might be somewhere down the line for me or it might not. We shall see. (laughs) And then I grew up also with a mother and a father. Um, My father passed away when I was 16. My brother, I have one sibling. He is 11 years older. And then my little current family is my husband, Mark. And we have three dogs, no kids. And that probably won't change for us. We, uh, We have made the decision not to have kids. So anyway, interesting that one of my favorite shows is Parenthood. But uh, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny that this podcast devoted to (laughs) Parenthood is by childless people. Who better, really, you know, to just make judgments and the way these characters know. That's not the point. (laughs) Precisely. All right. So 
let's get started Yay. with the pilot episode of Parenthood. It originally aired on March 2nd, 2010. It was directed by Thomas Schlamme and written by Jason Kadams. Tommy Schlamme is probably best known for his work as a director and executive producer of The West Wing, which was a big critical and ratings hit for NBC, the same network as Parenthood. And Jason Kadams was probably best known for his work on Friday Night Lights, which began on NBC, which he wrote and produced and was the showrunner for. But he also was known for such shows as My So-Called Life, which he was a writer on, Boston Public, and Roswell, which he created. Which I recently watched. Oh, how was that? It's fine. I don't know. I had these great memories of it from growing up, and I loved it back then. And I'm like, maybe not as relevant for this 38-year-old as it was to a kiddo girl in college. So there's that. That's fair. That's fair. Here's the official NBC synopsis of the pilot episode. Single mother Sarah and her two children, Amber and Drew, are moving back home with her parents, Zeke and Camille. Sarah's sister and complete antithesis, Julia, is a successful corporate attorney trying to juggle work and motherhood alongside her stay-at-home husband, Joel. Commitment-phobe Crosby, Sarah's younger brother, must accept adult responsibility when an old flame, Jasmine, shows up unexpectedly. Meanwhile, Adam, the oldest Braverman sibling, his wife Christina, and teenage daughter Hattie learn that their eccentric son and Hattie's little brother Max is diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. Although each sibling and family has its own share of life to grapple with, perhaps this reunion is the push they need to help each other pick up the pieces and focus on the everyday challenges that families face while raising children and starting over. Wow, that's thorough. (laughs) It is. Something that even just the synopsis reveals, I think, is that there are a lot of characters that need to be introduced and how they relate, quite literally, to one another is a tricky thing to make clear in someone's head. You know, lines like, Adam, the oldest Braverman sibling, his wife Christina, and teenage daughter Hattie learn that their eccentric son and Hattie's little brother, Max, (laughs) it's like, oh, you're just reiterating. Okay, remember, Hattie's the daughter. (laughs) And then they have another kid, Max. So that means he's Hattie's brother. (laughs) Get how families work? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) No, that's so funny. Well, and it was interesting to me that it was all centered, that that synopsis anyway, all through Sarah. You know, it was like she would, and and I didn't think about this when I was watching the episode, but I guess that is the inciting incident really, is that she moves to the same town where everybody else lives and that previously she was the only one who didn't live there. Yeah. And that's interesting with all shows really. It's like, okay, yeah, why now for like the start? And then why, you know, what are they going to wrap up in, in a sense when it ends? You know, usually there's some sort of change, I guess, to incite and to end. Yeah. I have a little quote here from Ron Howard, who directed the film of Parenthood and is one of the executive producers of the TV series. When he was asked how the show came about, Ron Howard said, It was Jason Kadem's idea originally. Jason does a spectacular job on Friday Night Lights, which is a movie that we were very proud of. And he came to Brian Grazer and I and wanted to talk about Parenthood. In our little pre-conversation, frankly, we were scratching our heads. We had tried once to do sort of a sitcom version of it that was just misguided. It didn't work, and in my mind, it didn't live up to the potential of all the stories and characters as they existed in the movie. So the first question that we asked of Jason was, well, why do you need parenthood? You're a great writer. You can develop your own family. 
and he made an argument for why the foundation of that family worked. And we felt that he could take this idea that meant so much to Brian and I, this idea, and bring it forward to today in a way that was compelling. I had never really even questioned it. I thought, well, just because Jason Kadams is really good at adapting other people's stories, at least based on this and Friday Night Lights. But yeah, that's true. He could have just created his own family, his own story. Yeah, why why adapt? I think that's a great question. Yeah, and it is such a loose premise. It's a great movie, and I, I would hate to say that it's not unique, but it's just four siblings who all have children, and that's it. <laughs> there's, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no other hook to it, really. Yeah, he probably could have just written his own, but I... I do love sort of these little moments from the movie, like seeing his interpretation of them, like not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but when Larry shows up with Cool in the in the film, I think it's really interesting that this show doesn't pick up the way that the movie does and he has already met this character. What a beautiful idea to start Crosby's story with, you know, essentially at the end of the episode with him meeting Jabbar. I'd like that's... That's really cool. And it's it's an interesting idea, this concept of just finding out you have a kid. But I sort of love the way that the show is tackling it. And I so I, I don't know, I'm rambling, but I feel like the movie does sort of set the stage for so many interesting stories. And so I, I can see the potential. Like, this is why. And there may be something to be said for just owning where inspiration struck. I'm a musician and a writer, and I had been working on a musical adaptation of the children's book, Tuck Everlasting, and I couldn't get the rights from the oh, author. I remember that. And I was shocked afterwards how many people would ask me, so do you think you're going to like just write your own version of it? And I thought, no. <laughs> it didn't even really make sense to me. I was like, how would I, how would I create my own version of this story? And they meant, I think, to use the songs that I had already written. Maybe there's a way you can just create your own characters in similar situations. Now, there, that is an incredibly specific situation, less so than just a family drama. So it was really impossible. So I can perhaps understand if someone said that to Jason Kadams. If he said, the reason I want to do a family show is because of parenthood. I'm not going to deny that that's where the inspiration began. I might as well just embrace it. I think that totally makes sense. Yeah. And and like you said in our last episode, I believe that even though this show definitely has a different tone and its own thing going than the movie did, there are definitely enough parallels that if they claimed not to be parenthood, you could be like, wait, hold up. This is awfully similar. So he would have had to change it far more. And if he had already started daydreaming and planning the way that, that you had, it would be very hard, I think, to just turn that off and go create something from scratch. Well, a little more about the show sort of even before it aired. There were it was sort of a notably rocky production process on the pilot. For one thing, the NBC vice president of drama programming, a woman named Nora O'Brien, died of a brain aneurysm while it was shooting on location in the Bay Area. She was only 44. Oh my god. Production on the pilot was shut down for 2 days. And the pilot was ultimately dedicated to her. At the end of the episode, they show her picture. I noticed that, and I almost looked it up. And then I'm like, 
Caleb's got it. I knew you would. I appreciate it. Well, and she apparently was, aside from being friends with everyone at NBC, I guess she was a very close personal friend of Peter Krause's. Oh, wow. So that happening right in the middle of all this. And she obviously, because she was the vice president of drama programming, she had been clearly instrumental in developing that very show. In addition to her passing, uh, Maura Tierney was originally playing Sarah in the pilot. And the pilot was slated for a fall 2009 premiere. But in July of 2009, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. So initially, production was halted on the series, and it was pushed to a mid-season premiere to allow her time for treatment. But the treatment took longer than expected, and she was unable to continue in the role, which led to it being recast and the pilot being reshot. And I watched the pilot episode once just to watch it, then once also with commentary on the DVD, as it was Jason Kadams and Tommy Schlamme, and they estimated that at least 60 or 70% of the pilot was reshot. That it wasn't just any shot in which Sarah appears. They said they used it as an opportunity to tweak and refine, which you normally wouldn't get to do on a pilot. And also they had shot a lot of stuff on location because at that time, apparently they they weren't sure that they weren't going to shoot the whole thing on location. Wow. They thought maybe we will shoot in the Bay Area. In fact, they revealed in the commentary that it had initially been set in Philadelphia. Oh. And that was, and they had production offices up and running in Philadelphia. That's where it was going to be. But in the middle of pre-production, they discovered they couldn't get the actors they wanted to commit to working in Philadelphia, you know, a majority of the year. Wow. So they thought maybe somewhere closer to Los Angeles. <laughs> That's when they landed on the Bay Area. And then even then, they moved that to, no, we're just going to shoot in L.A. And so there were scenes, I guess, in the pilot that took place on location that they then knew were never going to be on this location again. Maybe we just reshoot it so everything looks consistent. Oh, wow. That is super interesting. I think we both know Maura Tierney's work a little bit, at least. She's fantastic. Yeah. And I'm sure she would have been good. But now having seen the show... Lauren Graham just is Sarah Braverman. It is crazy to think about how different it would have been and how the character might have developed differently just by having a different wonderful actress in the part. Absolutely. The thing that really gets me about Lauren Graham and, you know, Caleb and I both really love Gilmore Girls as well. She's just so funny and light. And um, that's something we've kind of talked about, you know, just on our own before is how the show must feel lighter with her around. And and she, you know, Maura Tierney's good with comedy. I mean, I, I loved news radio back in the day. But if I remember correctly, she was kind of a more serious presence on an otherwise, you know, kind of wacky show. And and most of the work I've seen her do is is pretty serious. So that, that might be one way that it would be really different. You can find on YouTube one little scene from the pilot with Maura Tierney. You can also find a few promos that she's in. I'm going to do a little side-by-side here. And it's also interesting to hear Mora's scene contains some writing that is not ultimately in the pilot. So here's Mora Tierney in a scene from the Parenthood pilot. Amber, right now, I'm not kidding. Oakland is a living hell, Mom. I'm not moving there. I am moving in with Damien, we've decided. Right, Damien? Uh-huh. Are you kidding me? What? Damien, I would like to speak to my daughter. Do you think you could give us a moment? Perhaps you could use that time to put on a shirt. You stay right there, Damien. Don't let her scare you. Her bark is worse than her bite. Ah! Stop me! You're 
literally this ruining so that my you life. You can go to decent schools and have a chance of possibly becoming upstanding citizens of the world. What? Get in the car. Damien! Get in the car. No. Get in the car. We're going to see our family. I don't even know my cousins. And... Yeah. That's ridiculous. Of course you do. This is going to be great. Guys, I know it. It's going to be great. Things are going to turn around for us. I know it. I can feel it. And then now here's Lauren Graham doing basically the same scene. Amber, you need to get in the car with me right now. Look, Berkeley is a living hell, Mom. I am not moving there. I am moving in with Damien. We've decided. Right, Damien? Uh, Damien, I need to speak with my daughter. Could you give us a moment? Perhaps you could use this time to put on a shirt. Ah, ah, ah. You stay right there, Damien. Do not let her scare you. Her bark is worse than her bite. I told you we don't have a choice. I'm out of money. Plus, I want you guys to have a chance to be with family and become decent, upstanding citizens of the world. Get in the car! (laughs) Maybe because we don't have video, the first thing I notice is they're just very different vocal qualities. Maura Tierney has that kind of husky, a little bit raspy, low voice. And Lauren Graham has a very high, clear, bright sound. And it, it does paint slightly different pictures. And I think Maura Tierney might have really been successful at (laughs) kind of showing what a rough time she's had. You can almost hear it in her voice. And then with Lauren Graham doing it, her voice isn't quite such a tool in that regard. And yet it might reveal something different. Like despite all the stuff she's gone through, there is still this spark in her of a very playful, outgoing person. Yeah. No, totally. I might be reading way too much into no, it. No, I love that. Well, and I thought Maura Tierney sounded um, maybe angrier. And I thought that Lauren Graham sounded like more sarcastic, like kind of playful, you know, like, I mean, she was obviously mad, but it was like they're getting mad looks different, I guess, where, yeah, more tyranny is like worn out. Like, I do not have time for this, where like Lauren Graham is almost like, this is amusing. I mean, I'm I'm frustrated, but wow, you know, like Damien is his name. You know, I felt like she really punched that, you know, like you can't make this up. I don't know. I felt like that was kind of her approach is just both really good, just totally different. Yeah. In the commentary, they talked a lot about the challenge of Lauren having to step into a role where everyone had had months head start on her and she was the one new thing, just how difficult that would be, but that she rose to the challenge. Also, they said it was so hard to go back and reshoot something because typically if you're doing reshoots, it's because something was wrong. Something Mm. needed to be fixed and they said here it wasn't you know we didn't need to fix Maura Tierney she was great we just don't have her anymore and so you have to go fix this thing that wasn't necessarily broken but they also said the obstacles in the course of making this pilot they felt like perhaps bonded the cast together in a very familial way that might not have happened in just a typical pilot process Mm, I love that this is conjecture, but like how interesting that Peter Krause and Lauren Graham ended up becoming a couple and are still together now, you know, and and 
I think they knew each other already, but I think it was the show that kind of brought them together. Sometimes I'm fascinated just by behind the scenes stuff like that. Like how different would their lives be if Lauren Graham hadn't ended up on the show and yeah. more tyranny had, you know, like would they be in totally different romantic relationships now? Like it didn't just change their lives professionally. It changed them personally as well. This is kind of interesting. They had actually been on an episode of Caroline in the City what? together. They were both <laughs> guest stars and I found an interview with Peter Krause where he said that's how they met. And that at the time, Lauren Graham, I think, asked him like for help with moving or something. And he said he thinks maybe she was like dropping a hint and he just totally didn't pick up on it. <laughs> Why wouldn't you if Lauren Graham is dropping a hint? You pick up. But so then, yeah, like you said, through total chance, they wound up on this series together. And then... We're not brother and sister. <laughs> Oh, that made me so happy. And then love struck. <laughs> <laughs> that is so good. I, they do have a great chemistry together. And I choose to just pretend that it's, you know, that brother-sister, um, <laughs> you know, chemistry that they have. Yeah. Yeah. We will be on the lookout <laughs> throughout the course of the series if we ever think we detect some romantic... Um, Flames, vibes, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, we will call attention to it. Maybe we can ask for your help, listeners. Fingers crossed. (laughs) If we ever think we have found one of these vibes, should we alert it with... (laughs) Or should we alert it with... Let us know in the comments. <laughs> inspired you, choices, Caleb. What you think, or if you have other ideas. Wow. So yes, the the cast had a bond through a, these difficult steps in the pilot, but the pilot also had a lot going for it. It was based on this well-known movie. It was a hit movie. It had the notable director of The West Wing, an NBC hit, notable showrunner of Friday Night Lights, another NBC qualified hit a large cast i find this really interesting a large cast with a lot of actors who had had very long runs on other tv shows you know to me it feels so rare that a show gets picked up and then has a run and when people when actors are in multiple long runs it just seems like so against the odds the i think the big 3 in this cast are craig t nelson who was in 199 episodes of Coach and won an Emmy for that role. Lauren Graham, who was in 154 episodes of Gilmore Girls and had only ended that series like three years before this one began. So she was kind of coming off the heels of that. And then Peter Krause, who was in 63 episodes of Six Feet Under, which he was nominated for multiple Emmys for, uh, not to mention 45 episodes of Sports Night, which had been a Tommy Shlami thing as well. But then even aside from those very notable ones, Bonnie Bedelia was in 88 episodes of the Lifetime series The Division. Sarah Ramos was in 61 episodes of American Dreams. Mae Whitman was on 38 episodes of a Fox family series called State of Grace. Sam Yeager was in 26 episodes of Eli Stone, which was on ABC. Monica Potter was in the first season of Boston Legal on ABC. So just a very seasoned cast that viewers would be used to seeing on their screens in other roles. And in fact, 
Craig T. Nelson and Bonnie Bedelia had played a married couple before in the 1986 TV movie, Alex, The Life of a Child. I had no idea. That is fascinating. I didn't either. Thank you, IMDb trivia. (laughs) (laughs) In addition to how experienced the cast was, we also, in this episode, have our first Friday Night Lights alum alert. (laughs) So... Because, (laughs) presumably because Jason Kadams ran Friday Night Lights, there's a lot of crossover among actors. And uh, we will be calling attention to it when we spot them. (laughs) It will trip our Friday Night Lights alum alert. In the case of the pilot, it's pretty small. Sam Yeager, who plays Joel, appeared in season four, episode three of Friday Night Lights, which was called In the Skin of a Lion. He was Doug, who sells new uniforms to Coach Taylor. Oh, yeah, because they become the Lions. The East Dillon. Yep, it's all coming back to me. That's yeah. right. Good old Joel. All right, well, so let's get to the actual episode. That's everything that led up to Parenthood actually being on the air. The pilot begins with Adam Braverman jogging, which to me reminds me a little bit of Nate Fisher, who was a jogger as well. Their similarities end there. <laughs> That's that's probably true. I will. I mean, at some point I was going to mention it, so I might as well do it here. Uh, But we've discussed this before. I know that, man, Peter Krause is so incredibly talented because Adam Braverman could not be a more different character from Nate Fisher from Six Feet Under. And man alive, both of those characters are completely believable. And it's just and, and, you know, it's not like one of them is him like you know, going method in some way or having to like radically change the way he looks or, you know, nothing like that. It's just one is like a really good, responsible person and one's kind of a selfish jerk and just shades different from each other, really, and just so convincing in both roles. Yeah, you're so right. And never in watching Parenthood do you think of Nate, really. It's neither Melissa or I have watched Parenthood, certainly not in its entirety, in five years. Yeah. Upon returning to it, I feel like Lauren Graham's portrayal of Sarah is much more different from Lorelai than I remembered. But still, the differences in her portrayal are not quite as noticeable as Peter Krause's. His, it's like, I'm not even thinking of Nate. It's somehow so different. Whereas with her, probably because of just some innate Lauren Graham-ness that she brought to both roles, you'll see something and you'll go, oh, that's a little Lorelai. Yeah. Um, well, maybe also um, Nate Fisher and Adam Braverman being like, I think, just more different characters, totally different places in life, you know, um, totally different outlooks on life. I feel like both Sarah Braverman and Lorelai Gilmore are, you know, young moms uh, who are single, um, who have interesting dynamics with the parents, you know. So even though there are differences, it's just more of a similar character, too, I feel like. Yeah. So like we mentioned, one of the big jobs of this pilot is simply introducing everyone and making it clear what their relationships are. And sometimes, you know, lines like, Thanks, big brother. (laughs) I feel like are a little bit clumsy in their exposition. It's like, the sister didn't have to call her big brother, big brother. (laughs) I have, you know, we both have big brothers. Oh, no. That's not true at all. (laughs) (laughs) I have a big brother. You have a big brother. I have... Big sisters, I don't ever call them big sister, and they don't ever call me little brother. Although, to be fair, on occasion, they do call me brother. 
On occasion, I call my brother bro, especially um, in texts. I'm like, hey, bro. I don't know. I think I find it funny. But yeah, literally never called him big brother. (laughs) But I'll forgive it. (laughs) Well, it is interesting because he gets calls right in a row from, you know, his his sister from, you know, Sarah and then his dad. It does make sense to say, hey, dad, but then also his wife. And I was trying to think, well, I guess they did need to make it really clear that Sarah wasn't his wife because they have red hot chemistry together. And so yeah, they've got to just That's really, true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't want to confuse anybody. That's a good point, though. Oh, and Zeke does call Adam Sonny on several occasions. Which I never remembered, but I, I noticed that, too, upon rewatching. And that didn't stick out to me as much, I guess, because it feels a little more like it has a little more character on it than, you know, if he had said... Hey, oldest son. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it also seems like something Craig T. Nelson might say. Like, it felt like a nickname he might select, you know? Like, yeah. Hey, Sonny. And that he used it, I feel like, in several different contexts throughout the episode. Like, sometimes he was kind of teasing him. Ah, Sonny, come on. And then at the end, when he, you know, finds out about Max's diagnosis, he says, oh, Sonny. Yeah. And it, so it's something that felt then like a genuine nickname he had for him because he deployed it in all sorts of different ways. I am now thinking of Gilmore Girls where a different character, Liz, you know, Luke's sister, she called him big brother in every scene. Like that was just clearly what she called him. And so that sticks out to me less because I don't think we ever hear Sarah call Adam that again. So it's like clearly this is just exposition. I also frequently compare that to Melissa knows this already. But in Stephen King's book on writing, he's talking about backstory and how to work it in. And he gives an example of it not being worked in well, in which a character says, hello, (laughs) ex-wife. Yeah, excellent point. (laughs) Early on in this episode, when Max is playing his first baseball game, he's playing second base, which I wouldn't have ever realized was a tip of the hat to the movie until I actually watched the movie where that counterpart character um, says, Why'd you make me play second base? (laughs) I noticed that too. It was really fun watching the pilot right after seeing the movie. I I picked up on so much more that I'd never picked up on before. Now in that scene, uh, I thought this was a really interesting point that was brought up. Listen to me. All right, now it it doesn't matter if you get a hit or not, okay? It's, It's a game, it's all about having fun. Not having any fun. It just made me think about how lots of parents will say that to kids that, you know, this is just about having fun. Maybe it's my own background as a musician, which is something I started cultivating very young. If you're actually looking to develop a skill, I don't know that they want Max to become a professional baseball player. (laughs) So that's fair. But if you're actually looking to develop a skill, I think it's important at some point to come to grips with the fact that it's not about having fun, (laughs) at least not entirely, that sometimes it's going to be not fun and you have to work through it. Maybe this doesn't apply in this situation, but I thought it was so interesting that that Max had the insight to say, if this is about having fun, why am I here? And if you're not if you're not grooming me to become a professional baseball player, (laughs) then I'm out. That is such a good point. I didn't even really think about that. I kind of just thought watching that scene, well, Max is right. They should stop Um, (laughs) because, you know, you could see Adam look a little stumped in that moment. Like, huh? Yeah. Why are we here? Almost, you know, and probably, you know, you just said skill, probably baseball, you know, any sport 
maybe it's about exercise or athleticism, but maybe it's about, you know, teaching kids valuable lessons like responsibility and teamwork and, and, you know. Yeah, that's true. It does cultivate a lot of skills, even if you're not, even if baseball isn't the main one you're But yeah, maybe, maybe there's a different way to present it. Once Max says, I'm not having any fun. Well, then what else can it be? That's, that's a really interesting point. Well, quick, quick question for you then. It makes me wonder, how do you feel about parents making kids participate in things like that um, at all? You know, like, because at one point Adam says to him, you don't have to play baseball after this year, um, but we have to stick out the year, which I thought sounded very fair. What about, what about you? What do you think about that sort of thing? Yeah, I think that's fair too. It depends on the thing. You know, like I remember when I was a kid, I had to take swim lessons and I didn't want to. And I was eventually bribed, essentially. Triple scoop? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, I would get to rent a video. Ah. And that was my reward if I went to swim lessons. But it was a good idea that I was in them. And I think, well, if you had to give me a video, okay, great. On the other hand, I think it can also be a way to find out what your kid is, is interested in. That's a good point. My parents made all of their kids take piano lessons, whether we wanted to or not. And my sisters both can play the piano and both can read music. But after a few years, they stopped. It just didn't really ignite anything in them. But in me, it really did. And if they hadn't made us take piano lessons, who knows if I ever would have discovered that passion. Well, and you, I mean, speaking of Peter Krause and Lauren Graham having a totally different life, you would have a totally different life if you didn't play piano. A hundred percent. I mean, it's so interesting. It, w- it would look nothing like what it is. Wow. Well, it's <laughs> it's funny because my experience with um, sort of being forced into lessons, it's like the absolute opposite of your story <laughs> where it's like this wonderful thing that you play piano and it like changed your life for the better. Uh, I took dance classes for seven years and hated them. It's almost a joke between my mom and me, except sometimes she'll try to joke about it. And I'm like 38 and I'm still like too soon. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Where like, I think my mom just really wanted me to be graceful and sometimes will kind of like marvel at the different scenes she was watching from the bench because she would like sit in on every lesson and watch. And the one I was living, which was I was just miserable out there. I was very awkward and not very good at it. And and I just dreaded it every single week. And mom and her, I, I would tell her this, but she was like convinced this was just good for me. And so it, it's a really interesting thing because you know, my love ended up being poetry, which I discovered in college just taking a class. And so that's that's kind of my piano in a way, except <laughs> piano is more lucrative for you than poetry has <laughs> been for me. But yeah, it, it's it's interesting how we come to what, what we love. And, um, you know, sometimes maybe it is a bit of process of elimination. I don't know. In retrospect, do you see anything you gleaned from dance that you can appreciate that you didn't at the time or is it just a total loss? I know I, I try. Um, I have some 
fun dance moves. I can I can break out like the time steps, you know, and sometimes that's entertaining. Um, but no, for the most part, I really didn't like it. But I guess it's a good thing like to figure out how to you're not going to like everything in life and you have to it kind of taught me that like sometimes things are out of your control. You have to just do something I, I don't know but it is interesting to think about and to bring it back to parenthood it's like with max you know what what is he going to get out of baseball you know like if even if it is just this year what what is the point you know what why make him stick it out the year what what will be good about that did you have any kind of triple scoop incentive for dance or was it just <laughs> something you were forced to do uh, I was forced, um, but we did go get, I, uh, not ice cream, we got pizza every week after. So it was dance class and then Pizza Hut. So that was that was nice. Mm. I, I did enjoy my personal pan, you know. <laughs> <laughs> a little personal pain for a personal pan. That's right. That was the deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, on the show, I, I feel like that baseball game takes us up to kind of the unofficial theme song in the pilot, which is Bob Dylan's Forever Young. But there aren't any sort of traditional opening credits like we'll get starting with episode two. And if you're watching on DVD, perchance, you won't see Bob Dylan's Forever Young. You'll see uh, Lucy Schwartz's When We Were Young. Having just watched the film, I was surprised that the tone of the pilot right off the bat felt very comedic. And I thought it was really quite akin to the film, but not necessarily akin to my perception of the rest of the series. Yeah. My memory of the rest of the series is that it is not quite so comedic. Yeah, I'll be surprised if it turns out like maybe it's funnier than I remember. But there were certain lines that made me laugh out loud. And I was I was like, oh, yeah, I don't really remember this. I remember it being the show where you're supposed to, you know, have your Kleenex right at hand and, and all of that. And there were still moments like that that was definitely emotional as well. But yeah, it was really funny. Yeah. Another one of the things that felt quite different to me in the pilot is that Parenthood, like Friday Night Lights eventually adopts a shooting style that is very unique, um, that uses multiple... I shouldn't say very unique, because unique is something that can't have degrees. <laughs> something I'll is, forgive it. Something is either one of a kind or it isn't. It isn't more one of a kind or less one of a kind. This English teacher approves. <laughs> Thank you. But a parenthood will eventually adopt this shooting style that uses multiple cameras and a sort of proscenium style blocking where you're seeing everything from one side and very loose kind of improvisatory dialogue. And I am no expert with, you know, the technical aspects of film or television production, but this pilot to me feels like it is shot very traditionally which I would assume is Tommy Shlami's style. I especially noticed it in this baseball scene because when uh, Max gets called out at first, Adam runs to home plate and is yelling in the ump's face and the camera does this big swoop around them all the way around, which is a very cool shot. But I also thought, man, that's the kind of shot that we're never going to see again (laughs) because it's just not that kind of show. Yeah, was more cinematic than what we usually get, which is more like intimate and kind of the idea that we're in the room with them, like almost like documentary style. Yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. All I bring this up is to say that that style doesn't seem to be in evidence in this pilot. And I feel like it very quickly becomes the style of the show. And they'd already used it on Friday Night Lights. So I'm curious as to why, maybe just because they had Tommy Shlami on board and he had his own style that was different from that. Maybe you don't say no to him. (laughs) Well, if we can get Tommy Shlami to direct it, we should. And it's a beautifully directed pilot episode. It's not that it's a bad choice. It's just something that does feel different from the rest of the show that's to come. I think at this point also in the episode, we have now been introduced to all the siblings. Oh, yeah. Through various phone calls and whatnot. And I think that they actually do a pretty great job of introducing all the characters. Phone calls feel like a smart way to do that. You know, when Adam is on the phone with Crosby, he says, he mentions, get to the game, dad's out of control. And I thought, that is more artful than, thanks, big brother. (laughs) Yeah, good call. I'm glad he didn't say, our father, (laughs) who, um, you know. (laughs) Who aren't in the stands, (laughs) making an ass out of himself. Oh, man. You know, Braverman be his name. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I'll tell you something, though. This I never would have even thought about if we hadn't just watched the movie. But I was so interested in the fact that, you know, in the film, uh, Gil, the Adam character, and Larry, the Crosby character, like, have one scene together. And it's clear that they hadn't seen each other in, like, three years. And they have nothing in common. I don't even think they really like each other. And I was struck right away that with this phone call, he's calling Crosby because he's the assistant coach and he's late. I was like, oh, well, this is a major change and and one that I really like love but you know like they may get on each other's nerves and stuff but look at how close they are um I thought that was really nice that's true I noticed in you know Adam has a phone call with Sarah he has a phone call with Crosby he has a phone call with his dad um he has a scene with his wife Julia up to that point is the only one that isn't explicitly linked to the other siblings she has a phone call but it's from work oh yeah and she's in a scene with her husband But she's also the last sibling to which we're introduced. I think by then it maybe is clear enough what the conceit of these introductions is that you realize, oh, she must be related to all the rest of them. Yeah. It's also occurring to me now, it hadn't up until right this second, we're being introduced to them in age order. Oldest to youngest. Julia's the last. I love that. Well, and it is telling that Julia is on the phone with work because, you know, the pilot also has to do a lot of heavy lifting by like showing us exactly who these people are in 50 minutes. And that's who Julia is primarily as a lawyer, probably even more so than a daughter, a wife or a mother. <laughs> the next note I took uh, we go to a dinner at the Braverman household and I put Zeke and Camille's house backyard is so magical. It is the lanterns, the trees. Ah, it's beautiful. Yeah, I love it. Oh, although their house is one of the points that Berkeley residents point out is maybe not very true to the Berkeley area, that they have this craftsman-style house surrounded by big lots of land. I looked up a few articles about what the town of Berkeley thinks about their portrayal in the show. <laughs> and they they point out that, you know, they refer to like Berkeley coffee instead of Pete's coffee. They said not enough Priuses, too many white, <laughs> too many white people. A lot of white people. Not enough gay people. Mm. And they're like, why is Adam wearing corporate attire in this very hippy dippy sort of town? Uh, the executive producer, Lawrence Trilling, said in one of these articles, 
We want to be accurate. We want to reflect the local flavor and the diversity and open-mindedness of the community. Some people tell us that we're doing a good job. Others don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Well, it does it does beg the question of diversity in a in a show that's about an enormous family. So it's like how many extra characters can you have and the family's white? I don't yeah. Yeah, you might be more prone to forgive a family show for being racially homogenous because the odds that a family is one race seem greater than like six single people living in New York. Oh, yeah. In the case of friends, it's like why are they all white? Only two of them are related. That's true. And everyone in the background. <laughs> Why are they all? Yeah. <laughs> I did do a little look at the uh, 2010 census demographics in Berkeley, at least via Wikipedia, the unimpeachable <laughs> source of Wikipedia. <laughs> in 2010, Berkeley, California was 59.5% white, 19.3% Asian, 10.8% Hispanic or Latino ancestry of any race, and 10% Black or African American. In the pilot episode, the only non-white people I feel like we see is a choir that Crosby is recording. And then at the very end of the episode, Jasmine and Jabbar. And this is such a nitpick. And I know I've talked to you about this sort of thing before. But I do think it's really interesting that while Joy Bryant is in the opening credits, um, Jabbar, oh, I'm blanking. What's Jabbar's? Tyree Brown. Tyree Brown. He is not. And he, he isn't? I feel like he is in the opening credits. I maybe think not it, of the pilot. Maybe not in the pilot. We'll have to pay attention to that when we watch uh, season, episode two. But I think he starts being in the opening credits in season two. Um, oh. Because I feel like when I, and I hope that doesn't count as a spoiler, but you know, he's a kid on the show, just like all the other kids on the show. And they're all in the credits and he's not, at least I, <laughs> let's double check if I'm wrong, then this is a real embarrassing point and we should cut it right out. But I think, I think I'm right uh, that he's not in until season two. And I remember being really, uh, sort of surprised by that. And I kept thinking maybe he wasn't going to be on the show forever. I think that's why it's kind of sticking in my head because I kept being like, at some point, does he, you know, not be? In I don't know. It was just really interesting to me. I don't understand how that sort of thing works. but It does make you wonder what their plans for his character were because having just watched it with commentary, they mentioned that the character doesn't have any dialogue in the pilot. You know, he's in the scene, but he doesn't speak. And so the, he was a local hire from where they were shooting on location. Really? They said that they watched three videos and they're like, how are we going to evaluate who to cast? He doesn't have to do anything. And they apparently went with Tyree because he was so cute. He is so cute. He is so cute. <laughs> and then they said in the commentary, wow, what, a, what luck we had that we cast him purely for his cuteness. And then discovered, hey, he's actually good, very natural <laughs> on camera, and uh, and like fun to work with. And but I thought, did you not think that Jabbar might eventually speak? <laughs> <laughs> Is he just gonna be like? Maybe they were basing it off of cool in the movie. He really barely speaks. That's true. Um, yeah. But you know, I think on TV you would hope that you'd be on for several seasons, and that yeah. a character might eventually have to pipe up. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good point. You know, Jasmine is another good example. 
I think they knew she was going to be a character, but in the pilot, she has like three or four lines. She she doesn't speak much either. Did they just cast her because she's the most beautiful person who's ever lived? They might. I did. <laughs> I did like audibly react. Crosby has a line: "You look good," and they cut to her, and she says, "Thanks." And it is like, <laughs> whoa, she is. She does look great. I know. It's, it's maybe just... like the first shot of her head on that you've seen, Ugh, and it's so like, beautiful. Wow. <laughs> And a little like, how did he ever get her in the yeah. past? <laughs> but back to the point about diversity, you know, I feel like there's a fair amount of black representation in the show eventually, but in my memory, it's almost exclusively Jasmine's extended family. Yeah. What really struck me looking at the demographics, 19.3% Asian. I don't think I remember a single Asian character throughout the run of the show. And maybe I'll be wrong. I hope I am. Yeah. But um, if I don't remember them, then they, they didn't have much of an impact. And, you know, this is maybe the wrong way to think, but I remember taking this, like, uh, diversity, it's called Beyond Diversity Workshop, uh, when I got this um, teaching job in Lawrence, which is a really progressive um, city, and... They kept saying this line, which I now kind of live by, which is once you see it, you can't unsee it. And, you know, as a, a white person, I really didn't, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit, but I didn't notice for such a long time how white television was. You know, I really didn't notice, you know, that Friends was all white, you know, cast members. And, and, um, and now it's like I can't unsee it and I just wish for more diversity everywhere you know and and sometimes I'll just see a a part like like Max's teacher and be like did did she have to be white maybe that's a terrible way to think but you know it the just... principal in the movie was black I remember that's that right. on a larger scale watching the pilot while I love the cast you know uniformly I think they're all great it's not that I wish any of them weren't on the show I also thought any one of the Braverman's spouses could be of another race. Yeah. Adam or Julia or Sarah even could have married someone not of their own race. That's a really good point. It would have probably dictated who you would cast as the children, of course, but why not? I mean, they did it with Jabbar. Sydney can be an adorable little mixed race child. Yeah, well, and you know that's interesting. That you're you're totally right because earlier I was talking about maybe you get more of a pass with a family, but you know, Modern Family, you know, has a smaller cast, and Mitch and Cam are a gay couple, and you know because Jay marries Gloria, you know, like just a much more diverse mix, you know, and and. That's that's a really good point. Uh, I like to think maybe that's starting to happen more now. You know, like I'm watching Lauren Graham's uh, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist right now. I know you watched that as well. And I loved that Zoe's sister-in-law is Asian and it's, that's not a plot point. You know, she just is. They they cast somebody who wasn't white in that role and that made me delighted. And that's a very diverse show. And and that's San Francisco, also Bay Area. Oh, I mean, yeah. Very close to where Berkeley is. Good point. And if it's, you know, almost... 20%, one in five people you come across is going to be Asian. Wow, good point. And it's like, yeah, very believable that he would have met, fell in love with, and married an Asian woman. Maybe, you know, 10 years later, you know, that's the difference between parenthood and, and Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. I mean, uh, sometimes the world feels so dark and scary and like things are not changing at all. But maybe in some ways, 
certain things are like shows are maybe being more thoughtful about diversity and representation. And I don't think either of us bring this up to like indict parenthood. Oh, no, no. It, it is just like you said, it's it's hard not to notice once it's been brought to your attention. Yeah. It did make me wonder if Berkeley in particular as the choice of the setting was the wisest choice. Because as I was looking up those demographics on Wikipedia, just one little sentence where it said, it's widely recognized as one of the most socially progressive cities in the country. Mm. And some of the generational dynamics, like especially the difference in parenting philosophies of Adam and Zeke, yeah. feel like they might have landed harder had it been set in Philadelphia or somewhere in middle America, somewhere more traditional than one of the most socially progressive <laughs> cities in the country. Because you think, would Zeke's ideas about parenting be so traditional if he grew up in Berkeley his whole life? He might be way more enlightened than most men his age. Yeah, And maybe he didn't grow up in Berkeley. Uh, you know, that could be too. But it felt like something that might have had a bigger impact. So we see them at this dinner under the gorgeous lanterns. And this introduces something that I feel like is going to be a real hallmark of the series. Here's just a snippet. So, Sarah, mm -hmm. what's the plan? The plan. Are you going to look for a job or? <laughs> well, no, no, I've been home an hour. I was and I don't asking have a, a job question. Yet. No, I was just asking a question. Oh, okay. I was just asking a question, okay. right? I'm Switzerland. Don't Zeke. look at me. I don't want anything to do with wow. this army. We have a little toast. Excuse me. Old war. Excuse me. The master toastmaker has the floor to Drew and Amber and my shining angel, Sarah. Welcome home. So just that the nature of like the overlapping dialogue, it's so funny. This feels mild in comparison to what I feel like they eventually find in the show, a very natural talking on top of each other. But you can definitely tell that the seeds are there. Oh, yeah. And I love it. It is so realistic, you know, like. I, I love that moment of Julia kind of pressuring Sarah a little, not meaning to, just trying to seem invested. But Sarah, of course, interprets it as as putting the pressure on. Yeah, to Julia, that would be the natural course of it. Oh, you arrive, you make a plan. Yeah, that's and what you just do. Not how Sarah operates. Absolutely, it's such a great bit of character development, and and you know we're still getting to know these characters, um, and and it's just beautifully done. But I love that it doesn't have to be a whole big thing. It's not a huge conversation that takes up an entire serious scene. It's just that little moment, and then of course on the other end of the table, uh, Camille wouldn't have necessarily been realizing that was going on, and so she's like, "Let's have a toast." And that's how family dinners often work in real life. You know, not everyone is necessarily in on every part of the conversation and people are talking over each other and it just feels so natural. I really love that. Yeah. And Zeke's toast is so touching. And he gives a little, after he calls her his shiny angel, he gives her a little wink. And I feel like, again, like you just said, a little small moment that to me really establishes some kind of special bond between he and Sarah. Did I say that grammatically correctly, English teacher? He and Sarah? Between him and Sarah. Him and Sarah. You caught it. Thank you. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to do better. <laughs> 
That's all I ask. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, God. Um, no, I, I really loved that moment because um, that was one of the things I really love about the show. Not trying to give anything away, but you see it right there in the pilot. Like, she's really close to her dad. And it's funny to just have watched the movie. And I don't remember there being any sort of special connection between Frank and Helen. You know, That's like, true. does he have hardly any scenes with either of his daughters? It's all with Gil or Larry. Like, that's sort of interesting. Um, but but here he's obviously quite close to Sarah. Yeah. Um, some of these things we'll be discussing are just lines that made us laugh. For instance. Can we just play ping pong so I can lose myself in sport? <laughs> <laughs> that was the first like lol for me of the episode i was like oh right i love crosby like you know it's just fun to remember why i love these characters and it was nice to see you know maybe the the purpose of some of these little after dinner scenes were to show that the siblings and the in-laws relate to each other as well you know that was a scene with crosby and Adam and Joel yeah, all discussing. And then we go inside and we see Camille and Sarah and Julia and Christina. Yeah. All these Braverman women. <laughs> I also noted the conversation around Jim Kaczynski is just four women sitting around a table failing the Bechdel test. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Yes. Because it's all, you need is. a date. Do I? You do. <laughs> <laughs> Desperately. And you know, and maybe she does. I'm not saying it's out of character. <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny. It's like, oh, here's four. You know, because I guess the three guys, they were all talking about Katie. So That's true. Although they, they were talking the... about the sperm. Is there a, yeah. sorry, they failed the what? Oh, I was going to say the reverse Bechtel test, which is not a thing. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so Soon after that, Max has been playing basketball with Zeke. He gets a bloody nose. You, you really have to be playing with him that hard. Hey, you weren't any different. You had to get over your fears, too. We're not raising him the way that you raised us, right? Oh. Okay, what's that supposed to mean? It means I don't want him to feel like everything in life is a war. Oh, Sonny. It is a war. Now, I think what that scene is supposed to show is just the different generational styles of parenting. I'm still a little confused by it is a war. What exactly that's supposed to mean? I am right there with you. I think that's the sort of line that if I were not doing a podcast would have just blown right past like whatever but because I knew we were going to be talking about this episode I was like what does that mean that is a war you know and and I don't know if I should say this part because we were committed to no spoilers so feel free to cut it if you're but but I mean the only thing is that we do find out later that Zeke you know is a vet um it's a pretty small spoiler I don't a veteran not an animal doctor <laughs> Good call. Yes, a veteran. And <laughs> so maybe that just is indicative of how he like views everything, you know, like maybe if you've been in war, you you think everything, you know, you think of life in those terms. But I still didn't get it. I was like, does that mean there's a winning side and a losing side? Does that mean there's violence in everything? Or or does that mean men have to be like... Or you got to fight for yourself? Or yeah, yeah. You have to... Does it does it mean you, you, you have to be brave, like their name says, you know? And you can't just be emotional, because that's the word they used about Kevin in the movie, you know, and kind of are alluding to with Max, you know, sensitive is the word they use in this. And maybe that has something to do with it, just the idea of what it means to be a man. I, I really wasn't sure. We're probably reading too much into it. Probably. I, he probably just supposed to be like 
oh, Adam and Zeke see this situation differently. Yeah, probably so. <laughs> but it, it was an effective scene nonetheless. You know, we do get the sense that, oh, they're, they're quite different. I see. Soon after, we have a scene with Sarah and her kids. You know, when she catches one of them, she catches Amber smoking and Drew floats the idea of going to live with his dad. And this was where, you know, if you had asked me my memory of the pilot, I would have said that Lauren Graham was kind of doing her Lorelai Gilmore shtick. Watching it again, I really don't think she is. In fact, she really, to me, feels subtly harder than Adam or Julia. I buy that she's had a rougher previous two decades than any of her siblings. And in the way she interacts with her kids and the way she carries herself... It comes across without feeling like it's being broadcast to me. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, this woman has seen some stuff. She's lived some life. It's not been all lanterns hanging from above her and <laughs> champagne toasts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you have been married to a, a drug addict, I mean, yeah, like I, I, I can't even imagine, you know, she, she really seems pretty together for it. That must've been so hard, but yeah. Right after that, we see Crosby at work in a recording studio. It's clearly his job, something to do with recording. We know that Julia is a lawyer, I believe. I don't think they tell us what Sarah does or did. Yeah. And they don't tell us what Adam does. So we only see half the siblings at their jobs. Speaking as musician, (laughs) sidebar. (laughs) When Crosby tells Katie that there's nothing off in The Sopranos, that it's called a major seventh chord, there's no major seventh happening right there. (laughs) (laughs) That is so fun. I had no idea. Just something that a writer thought sounded like music, which there are such things as major seventh chords. The choir just wasn't singing any of them. (laughs) That's so interesting. Do you think that maybe the reason we get those two siblings' jobs and not the other two, I mean... Again, trying to keep the spoiler free, but I do think that their jobs define them in a way that Sarah and Adam's jobs don't really define them. Like, I feel like like their relationships with their kids and uh, in Adam's case, you know, his wife, I think are a lot more um, indicative of who they are. And Crosby, you know, the fact that he's a, you know, like works for a recording studio that says a lot about how like, you know, he's cool, he's uh, unconventional, you know, and then of course, Julia's job is just unbelievably important to her and her storyline. And it directly relates to her storyline about her husband and kid. So I just wonder if maybe the pilot didn't really need to explain that about Adam and and Sarah because it's just not as important. They'll get to that later. That sounds sensible. Uh, This is a little bit of a tangent. I remember hearing Lauren Graham describe the difference between Lorelai Gilmore and Sarah Braverman as Lorelai approached all of her challenges as a winner and Sarah was much more pessimistic. And there were lines in the pilot that to me made me remember that. Like when she says, I think I should look for a place on the slim chance that we wear out our welcome. Mm. And she says it as a joke, but it still felt to me like it revealed that even this backup plan that she finds herself in, this last resort yeah. of living with her parents, she just assumes that will go belly up too. Yeah. It's so sad. It's like, oh, what an awful assumption. I, I feel like family is supposed to be, you know, the thing you can always count on. And she clearly kind of thinks we'll wear out our welcome here too. It's only a matter of time. Which is fascinating because, you know, in in the brief scenes we do get from just this episode alone, 
you know, Camille is so kind to her. Um, you know, she's like, nonsense, put that away. Don't even look. You're, you're staying here until you get back on your feet. And, you know, of course, Zeke calling her a shining angel. And I'm like, wow, this is a far cry from the Gilmore Girls pilot where, you know, <laughs> she hasn't seen her parents in such a long time. Emily makes a joke about how it's not Easter. And then Richard makes the same joke when he sees her, you know, like it's just never. And then, you know, it's such a, a huge point that she has to swallow her pride and ask them for help. And in parenthood, it feels less like swallowing pride. It feels more like they're close and she can ask for help when she needs it. So that makes it to me even more interesting that Lorelai sort of approaches everything as a winner when she's had this more contentious relationship with her family. And and Sarah, who's been nothing but loved and supported and not criticized, it seems, um, still approaches things more uh, as, a, as a, you know, someone who's pessimistic and feels maybe like a loser so it can't just all be family support you know it's got to be so many factors what gives a person gumption what doesn't it also her closeness with her parents makes me sort of wonder if sarah feels like she has hidden some of the worst things she's gone through from her family Mm. like maybe if she thinks They don't really know the extent of what i've been dealing with and if they did they would judge me more harshly I don't, I, I'm totally sort of reading into that. I, I don't think that was meant to be in the episode, but I, yeah. I do feel like there's a little bit of it there if you want to see it. Yeah. Her scene at the police station when Hattie and Amber are arrested, I felt like that established very nicely a sense that she is constantly comparing herself to other people, particularly her siblings. Yeah. Particularly Adam and Julia. Might make you feel better to compare yourself to Crosby. (laughs) Right. But that she feels like through everyone else's eyes, she must seem like such a failure. Mm, Yeah. And like, is anyone surprised to see Amber at the police having been arrested? Probably not. The real story is, oh my gosh, Hattie got arrested. Yeah. Good girl uh, who never does anything wrong. It's only when Amber came to town that something started going wrong. And then as, as Amber points out in the next scene... Mom, it wasn't my weed. That's great. What a relief. I'm so proud of you, honey. It's like, clearly, that wasn't even the issue. Yeah. She cares how it looks because she's embarrassed in front of her own family. But I... And maybe this isn't the point and I'm just stuck on something, but I was kind of like, what did happen? You know, you, you know, Amber's like, it wasn't my weed. I was like... Well, certainly it wasn't Hattie's weed, right? Because she didn't even want to like smoke a cigarette in her grandparents' house. I'm like, what happened? How did they get arrested? You know, I just, and it's, I know, not the point, but I did get kind of stuck on that. I'm like, what went wrong? I don't understand why they got arrested at all, Um, especially if it wasn't Amber. And I believe Amber. And again, I would say, is Berkeley the best place to set this show? Would people get taken in, booked for just smoking weed somewhere? Let's set this show in... Kansas. And then, <laughs> then okay, yes. yeah, maybe. But I feel like Berkeley, the cops might go, yeah, teenagers smoking weed. I don't know. Just that... another Wednesday night. <laughs> In the next scene, I want, I just want to give a bravo to Amber, who's sitting on the couch watching TV and eating carrots, which is something I have literally never done. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it is the next scene following that um, that scene between her and Sarah. And then um, Sarah's leaving for her date. 
And so soon after that, you know, little dust up, we see a completely different side of their relationship. Are you sure about the shoes? Go on. Well, I mean, it's a date, not a bar mitzvah. I just think you should really go with your strong suit, you know? What is my strong suit? Uh, your boots, obviously. Right. Also, that bag is, it's very 1960s. Not in a good way. I just, it was nice to see that they do have some decent communication skills. They don't hold grudges, apparently, mm -hmm. for too long. They can call a truce. Yeah. I thought that scene was really beautiful. I, I don't know. I love complicated relationships, and I find them just so much more interesting, obviously, but than just one note. Even if the one note is good, even if the one note is tense, you know, and, and friction, but I was suddenly much more interested in their earlier fights, which is basically all we'd really seen between them up until this point. I was much more interested in those fights juxtaposed next to this kind of dynamic where, you know, she's giving her good advice. You know, she, she has no ulterior motive. They're just being, you know, sweet and, and kind to each other. And, and you can tell that they also have this dynamic. I loved it. And the boots did look great and the flats didn't. Yeah, she was 100% right. Although I love that little moment when she gets out of the car for her date and she wobbles a bit like, oh, it's been a while since she's, you know, worn these. <laughs> it's so funny when she gets to the date and she sees Jim, they like both lean in and they bump heads. And in the wake of that, he's like rubbing his forehead. There's a good like two or three seconds in which Sarah just stares at his <laughs> shirt or maybe it's his body and takes it in and it's just such a funny expression of like horror and disbelief <laughs> and it's so subtle or maybe it's the fact that it's not quite su that subtle but she sneaks it in there and I thought it was so funny I had never noticed it before oh that whole scene is super interesting because I really loved Sarah this whole episode and that date Especially the phone call with Julia and the like at the very beginning of the date where she excuses herself to just go yell at her sister. I'm like, it's not a good look for her. It was and, and I, I just thought, oh, this is so mean. I, I, I don't know. Hello. Well, is this who I am to you? What are you talking about? I mean, I know I'm not a big lawyer who walks around on the weekends in a juicy pantsuit. Does that mean I have to go out with a fat, balding barista? I'm just wondering, is that who I am to you? Oh, my God. Sarah. No, no, no. Don't oh God me, Julia. I know you're sexier than me. Everybody knows it. Whoa, whoa. Hold on. I don't understand why you have to always prove that you're better than me. I'm never letting you set me up again. Ever. Good, because I, I'm done trying to help you. Well, you, I don't need your help because I'm not some charity case. Screw you. Oh, no. Screw you. I can't talk to you right now. Anyway, I have to go because I am on a friggin' date. Yeah, I agree with you. It's very judgy. I... I understand her frustration uh, really only to the point that earlier in the episode, Julia said he was smoking hot. Yes. Okay. That was maybe misleading. No offense meant to Mike Nickelodeon Guts O'Malley. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, where have I seen him? I <laughs> Hello everyone. I'm Mike O'Malley. Welcome to the extreme arena home of Nickelodeon Guts. Do, 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 do.
Anyway, he's great, but smoking hot is maybe not accurate. But that aside, it is awfully judgy of her, especially to judge him for being a barista when she's unemployed and living with her parents. Yeah, I thought the exact same thing. I was like, who cares? Like, that's a fine job. I don't know. Like, maybe it's not your dream job for a potential spouse, but I thought that is not a good look to, like, it's very classist, it felt like. And then I would not call him fat. Maybe that's, you know, I I don't know. Maybe I'm, but I, I just thought that was, that was harsh. And I don't know. The whole thing was just so cruel. I just thought I could see not being as attracted to him as you would have liked and maybe being mad at Julia for like misleading you. But I thought just talk to her later. Like the fact that she excused herself from the date and the fact that she was so unable to hide her displeasure from him on the date. I just felt so bad for him, even though he was a much more confident person than than Sarah turned out to be, you know, and I thought just uh it, it made her look so bad that I was really really glad she had the moment where she like cried in front of him and sort of broke down and you could tell she felt like a jerk and I'm like well good you should feel like a jerk I'm really glad you called you know I've always thought about you Sarah are you are you all right or kept this all this time. <laughs> so nice. You're so nice and funny. I married this guy who's, you know, like a tortured musician and he has this drug problem. <sighs> I'm such a jerk. It's just... I... I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. At the um, the dating thing anymore, you know. And I mean, let's face it, in my prime, I wasn't I wasn't that good at it either. Yeah, you're more beautiful than I remember you. <laughs> shut up. You are. Seriously, please shut up. It's so beautifully acted and so beautifully written. I teared up for the first time in that scene. It feels like it's maybe the first glimpse we get in the pilot of the kinds of moments that I think the show ends up doing so well, which are really small, but very touching, very human. And a couple other things about it, because we just watched the movie, you know, when she says that he's so nice. Yeah. It made me think of when Gary in the movie is talking about the biology teacher and says, it seems like he'll be, someone will be really nice to you. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's, I don't know that it was meant to be a callback, but it certainly did make me think of it. And then also I think there was a nice little reiteration of some exposition that had happened earlier in the scene with Amber and Drew. Amber did say if Drew goes and lives with his dad, they can share a drug dealer. Yeah. And then Sarah says, I married this guy who's a drug problem. It's like, ah, okay, we've got it from two two sources. Yeah. <laughs> and, but it hasn't been the topic of mm-hmm. any conversations yet. Because it feels like good exposition. Yeah, you know, it feels both, very both naturally natural. worked yeah. in. The only thing that... I bumped on a little was that it ended with him saying she was beautiful and her going, really? No. (laughs) I've exaggerated that to criticize her delivery of the line. In a way, it made it feel like, oh, just tell her she's pretty and then she'll be fine. (laughs) I don't think that's what we're meant to take away from it. But a little bit, I was like, is that the point of the scene? 
Now, that aside, I do think she's beautiful. And I think her sharing this with him makes her even more so. I feel like that's probably what he was saying. And, you know, and he's showing up there very authentic in where he is in his life. He's not trying to impress her, but he's also not embarrassed in yeah. the way she is. I think she's trying to present this version of herself that is not very authentic, but that she thinks will be more impressive. And once she shows actual authenticity, that's what he responds to. I, I love that. That's true. Because I think he tells her when he first sees her that she looks great. You know, something like that. Um, and Right, because her response is, and you. Oh, that's right. <laughs> oh, God. Um, but yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't call her beautiful until after she um, reveals something about who she is. And that, that seems like an important distinction. I, I really hadn't noticed. I like that a lot. That's beautiful. I wrote down, Jim is a poet and Melissa is a poet. Oh, actually, that's exactly what I was going to say. He just got a poem in The New Yorker. That's that's no small thing. Um, just saying, I've never gotten a poem in The New Yorker. Some friends of mine have, and that's amazing, but uh, I have not. And so I'm like, oh, yeah, he's not just some, you know, writing cute little poems on the side. That's a big deal. And listeners, you need to know that Melissa is not a poet. <laughs> who writes little poems on the side. She doesn't write greeting cards on the weekends. She writes really gorgeous, beautiful poetry that has been widely published. She has two books available. Check oh. out her website. Oh, If you Kayla. enjoy great contemporary poetry, she's really oh. terrific. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, if we're doing this, I mean, everyone should really know that Caleb plays and conducts on Broadway when we're not in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, <laughs> the industry formerly known as Broadway. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just like incredibly accomplished. I mean, literally the only person I know who... um is able to support himself just by playing piano again, not during a pandemic. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, now that our little love fest yeah. is has happened, <laughs> this is, okay, this is a t not a total tangent, but a little tangent. Let's hear it. Katie says earlier that her sperm donor is an Olympic athlete and a Rhodes Scholar. And then in this later scene, with Crosby, he says that he looked him up and he reveals that he was on the Olympic bowling team. <laughs> but fun fact, bowling was only an Olympic game at the 1988 Summer Games in Seoul, where it was a demonstration sport. A demonstration sport is one that's used to promote the sport rather than as an official part of the Olympic program. Uh, bowling made the shortlist as a new sport for the 2020 Summer Games, but it ultimately wasn't included. Oh. And of course, the 2020 games ultimately didn't happen. Wow, yeah. They should be going on like right now as we record this. You're totally right. So I guess he was on the 1988 bowling <laughs> team because <laughs> there's no other way that could have been true. That's so interesting. Well, we should talk about that scene um, because I have an opinion on this one. I think Katie is right. Um, and I think that Crosby should just break up with her. I thought it was really kind of messed up that he felt so like, in my mind anyway, so like possessive about like, and so weirded out that she wants a baby so badly that she's going to do it on her own with this sperm she's, you know, gotten that he ends up striking this deal with her. And the deal that they're making is that she, she will have a baby with him in three years. And I'm like, 
Cosby clearly doesn't want to have a baby with her in three years. Do not waste three years of this woman's life. Just break up with her. Your whole family is like, says her name like Katie and like engaged, you know, like they're just, they're so like not invested and you can tell that Crosby's not invested. I'm like, what are you even doing? So anyway, that was my opinion. I thought just break up with the poor girl. I hadn't thought about it quite in that way, but I think you're totally right. On one hand, she had this plan and she didn't tell him. I get why he might be a little perturbed by that. But she clearly didn't tell him because she didn't want to pressure him into something that she was pretty sure he didn't want. And turns out she's exactly right. He doesn't want it. So it's really kind of considerate of her. What I wrote down about it was I like Katie as a character on her own, but I don't quite understand what she and Crosby are doing together. Isn't she clearly way out of his league? Pretty clearly, I think. You know, I mean, I mean it yeah. seems like maybe she works. Well, she does, I guess, work at the same place he does. But it seems like she's maybe higher up. Yeah. I think she's super attractive. She seems nice. I mean, we don't get that much of her, but she she certainly doesn't seem like a raging bitch or anything. No, she, yeah, she's, and she's just very self-assured, knows what she wants. And I mean, maybe we're just not getting the whole picture and maybe they should have had more of a conversation about this. But if I'm remembering correctly at the beginning of the episode, Adam, when he calls Crosby, he's he's like, oh, are you guys, did you guys have the makeup sex? So it's like this idea, like maybe they just got back together, you know? Uh, so or maybe feel... they're on again, off again or something. Yeah, yeah. I didn't get the picture that that she was like betraying him in a huge way by going and getting the sperm. It didn't feel super serious, the relationship. Also, it must be said that that actress was in the Mighty Ducks as Connie. And yes. I, <laughs> you, I knew you would know that too. I just, that was, that movie was my obsession when I was like 12. So Mighty fun. Ducks coming back as a TV series oh, starring right. Lauren Graham. Oh man, it all comes full circle. That's crazy town. Mighty Ducks explains everything. It does. It just <laughs> does. <laughs> Katie really gets dumped on. And like later he's openly floating the idea of cheating on her. With Adam, yes. he's like, is it okay that I go see this other woman, presumably in the hopes that we might reconnect, yeah. even though I'm with Katie? It's like, no, that's not okay. No, I know. I, I felt the same way. I was like, are we supposed to not like her? Because she seems very sensible to me. She brings up good points. She wants a baby. She's 34. You know, when, when you know, Crosby was like, let me get my stuff together. And he she's like, I just saw a decade pass before my eyes. I'm like, she's not wrong. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. We like you, Katie. I loved this line. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder. Mommy. Yeah, baby. Could daddy sing? Ouch, Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. is brutal. That is brutal. We got to talk about that. Yeah. And when you can see her face too, it's like, a, I hate to break it to you, mom, but <laughs> we know what needs to happen here, right? You know, I think the line about Julia's um, relationship with her daughter that got me the most was it was just like kind of a throwaway line. And it was when she, it was the, I think the one scene with all four siblings at once um, in Adam's uh, kitchen slash dining room. And it was so interesting because it was not the focus of the scene, but Julia said something along the lines of, you know what, it'll be fine. I'll just think of her as a relative. Uh, I can manage this. I can lower my expectations. Like you could just see her problem solving like she might at work. And she didn't even sound like she was concealing a broken heart. She was really like, okay, how do I, 
how do I wrap my head around this? You know, and I thought, wow, that's kind of heartbreaking, but maybe it's okay like that she's fine that her daughter just openly prefers Joel. I I don't know. That got me. I can't relate because I don't have children or a spouse where one stays home. (laughs) But it seems like something I could imagine happening if, you know, because Joel stays at home, Sydney spends 100% of her time with him around. And she spends probably 50% of the time with Julia around. At best. Um, I did wonder, what did you think of the way that Julia and Joel handled Sydney openly preferring Joel? You know, did you think like when Sydney asks for Joel to cut her meat or for Joel to sing the song, did you think that they should just go along with that as they did? Or did you think that they should have been like a little bit stricter? Because both times they would be like, no, honey, I'm right here. I'm doing it. But then they just kind of gave in. Good question. I... I it didn't catch me off guard so I think I thought it they handled it fine. I mean particularly at the dinner when there's a whole bunch of other people around uh it's like yeah, let's just avoid conflict for now. He can cut the meat, not a problem. Even though that's a kind of a ridiculous request. Yeah. I I can't imagine a kid would care, but yeah. I I can imagine that they really? would care. It seems like one of those ridiculous I have my, both of my sisters have 5-year-old daughters and 3-year-old sons. And that seems like one of those pointless things a child (laughs) might have a very strong preference about. That's true. And it's like, do you take the time to reason with this unreasonable request? Or do you just, because it's kind of inconsequential, just go with it so that you avoid a problem? I bought that they would avoid it. And it doesn't seem like something so terrible to avoid. Mm -hmm. I did like in the bedtime scene that Julia, uh, that Julia... Jolia. <laughs> That's their celebrity nickname. That's their celebrity nickname. I liked that Joel kind of put up a fight. I mean, he was a little bit insulted on Julia's behalf. Yeah. And Julia said, oh, it's fine. We got to do the story. And then Sydney, to her credit, she goes, and that's the best part. Yeah. Um, so it, it did seem like, okay, it's not that there's no connection. It's not that she loves Joel and hates Julia. What did you think? I kind of forgot about that line where Sydney says, and that's the best part. You're right. That helps. I guess I'm torn because I can see if you are a parent wanting them to feel completely loved and taken care of and like like they're being valued and heard. But at the same time, where do you draw that line between making sure they feel valued and loved and honoring kind of arbitrary requests that that almost give the kid too much power? Like, okay, maybe I shouldn't say this, but this is such a small thing. But there are some kids in my extended family who um, they will select when we go out to eat or when we did when there wasn't a pandemic. Um, but they, they would uh, dictate where everyone would sit at the table. You know, they, they would be like, you sit there and you sit there and I want to sit next to you. And I've, I find myself really resistant. I, I, like, I, I'm like, I, I don't want this, you know, 10-year-old to tell me where to sit. And that sounds maybe terrible. And maybe... They're 10, though? They're like, yeah, they're like 10 and telling everyone where to sit. And we're all just supposed to do it because isn't it cute? Or aren't we giving them some power or something? But I'm like, I don't know. Something about it doesn't sit right with me. And um, <laughs> No pun intended. No pun intended. And maybe that's terrible of me. And maybe if I had kids, I would feel totally differently. But part of me is like, there's a difference between a request where like a, a kid would sweetly say, could I sit next to you? That I would find adorable. And I would absolutely sit next to the kid. 
But something about a kid getting to decide where everyone in the family sits feels a little bit indulgent. I don't know. I, I guess I don't think it's so great when we give kids more power than maybe they should even have. You know, it, 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 sometimes I, I mean, as a high school teacher, I, I kind of, I think, am wary of the behaviors that I think turn into entitlement later on. And I think that that might be the sort of behavior, you know, and, and, and maybe it is just easier to give the kid what, what they want in the moment. But what kinds of behaviors will later turn into entitlement and brattiness, you know, and I think that's something that I'm kind of on the lookout for. So one tiny thing in the scene in which Crosby is floating the idea of cheating on his girlfriend. Yeah. (laughs) They're having a meal at Oscars, which is a real restaurant in Berkeley, or at least it was. It closed in 2015. I'm not 100% sure that the scene was actually shot at the real restaurant, but I quick Google image search. It sure looks like it. So that's cool. Whether they were really there or not, um, they paid attention to the design of it. I have a thought about that scene, but I don't mean to cut you off. Have at it. Have your thought. Okay. My thought was that Crosby, such a small moment, but he gives Adam grief for ordering a veggie burger at Oscars. You know, this idea of like, we're at this great burger place. And I think I only noticed that because I'm married to a vegetarian and um, he gets that sort of thing all the time. And I wondered, much like I did with the scene about Zeke saying, you know, like, like this is a war or something, just these subtle ideas of like masculinity, what it means to be a man. And it may sound really dumb, but a lot of men men in particular, I don't really see it so much from women, but they really get bothered by the fact that Mark is a vegetarian. He had an uncle come visit us once who just kept like making an issue of it when we would go to a restaurant, you know, and would say, what are you, what are you getting? You're getting that? Get the meat, you know, get the get the beef, get the, you know, and, and Mark was like, I'm fine, you know, and it was interesting because it's not like Mark was, I feel like the joke is often that vegetarians or maybe especially vegans are really pretentious and annoying about it. But I've noticed the opposite. Like I've never once heard Mark be holier than thou about it. In fact, if he ever goes to a dinner party or something and somebody didn't realize he was a vegetarian, he'll eat the meat in that case. Like he just doesn't want to, you know, anyway, this is too long. <laughs> but I, I do think that it's really interesting. I that do too. Crosby says that to Adam. It's this other idea of like, you know, Max is sensitive and Adam is raising a sensitive boy. And he's even getting like nitpicked about not ordering meat and being like maybe healthier. And he's running at the beginning. And and it's just really interesting, I think, to look at all of that. And like, what is this show saying about masculinity and what it means to be a man? I'm not sure. That's a very good point. I only read it as Crosby still being in like the college years phase of life Mm. where young guys think they're going to live forever and just eat whatever they want. Oh, that totally makes sense too. And Adam is responsible and he's like, I have a family and I need to live until they are raised. But I think your point is equally as valid and really interesting. I hadn't thought of that. And yet, it, while it sounds ridiculous, it doesn't sound unbelievable. It seems yeah. like, yeah, I think guys would. Whereas, like, do I, I, I have a harder time imagining a woman being like, you're not going to eat meat? They don't yeah. care. 
No, I don't think they do. And and I I would I would have said that men didn't care either, except I've seen it many times. People think it's weird that Mark is a vegetarian, even though he's like this wonderful cook and our meals are incredible. And I don't miss like I don't eat meat most of the time because he cooks and I don't miss it. So I think people maybe have a false idea of what it means to be a vegetarian. That's like boring or that it's, you know, but anyway, yeah, it's just kind of fascinating. Let's discuss this scene between Adam and Christina. She thinks that you may have Asperger's. Asperger's? Like autism? Look, Max is it's not high functioning autistic. autism. A lot I know of people what it is. with talking Asperger's. About autism. Max is not autistic. Productive lives. Adam. Christina, I've seen autistic kids, a Lessing's kid with a hand She was saying that when she was with him, she saw certain she patterns. He was having a very bad day. I know that day, he was. Okay, and those tests I know that, that he was. Were ridiculous. Adam, that's she didn't not connect true. with him at all. You know how important it is for him to feel she safe. She said that if we get him the right tools to learn, I said, Adam, she wasn't talking about it. I'm not sending him to special ed. There's something wrong with our baby. It's not just, it's not just the academics, okay? It's not, it's not just the biting or, or the pirate costume or the fear of fire or the, the tantrums. It's everything. Please don't make me be alone with, with this. I don't want to. All right. Wow. Yeah, I, mean, I think a lot of what a pilot, I guess, is supposed to do, aside from just introduce you to the characters, it also introduces you to the actors. Mm. And I think a lot of actors in this pilot get a chance to give you a glimpse of what they're going to be bringing. And, you know, Sarah, with that little monologue on her date, I think is a good example. And this, to me, is the first glimpse of how incredible Monica Potter is going mm. to be. Yeah. I also think, like we did with the dinner scene, this nicely introduces the overlapping dialogue. Most of that scene, she and Adam are talking on top of each other, and yet it feels very realistic. And it, that really feels like, yeah, parenthood's going to do this a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought that was really beautiful. My one quibble, it's not even with, how do I put this? I don't love that they say there's something wrong with him. That That felt not right you know that felt like not the thing to say but at the same time i thought maybe it is the honest thing that a parent would say after getting such a diagnosis you know it's it's not very politically correct and i i do think the words we choose matter and i i think it would be almost irresponsible to describe you know autism as there's something wrong but maybe that is just what parents would say in that moment i don't know did you have a thought about that I didn't, other than, I mean, hearing you say it, I, I should say I, I don't have really any real life experience with really neurodiversity of any kind. I mean, I have a few acquaintances I know who are on the spectrum to some degree, but not close. No one in my family that I know of. Yeah. So I don't have a lot of vocabulary around the subject. I do know that people without autistic traits are referred to as neurotypical. Huh. So in the sense that Max is atypical, huh, yeah. a parent might say there's something wrong. There is something not typical. I also think it's believable that they wouldn't have the appropriate vocabulary at that point. Yeah, they're just kind of reeling. They didn't know they were raising mm -hmm. a child with Asperger's. And we've discussed a little bit, not on the podcast, that... Asperger's as a diagnosis itself is really kind of falling out of fashion. 
it's being called other things, but that this show uses Asperger's throughout the, the run of the series. Also, Jason Kadams, it should be mentioned, has a child with Asperger's syndrome. So he's certainly drawing on his own experience. And it does make me feel better because I think you raise a valid point. And it does make me feel better to know that someone who is experienced personally with these things wrote that line. That makes me feel a lot better too. I actually didn't know that. I think that's super interesting to know. And it makes a lot of sense because the movie was so vague about what Kevin's, you know, quote unquote, emotional problems were. And I think that it was really... um, You'd have to, on a series that's really delving into it, you'd have to get a lot more specific about what it is we're talking about. So I think giving it a specific diagnosis was a really good idea. Jason Kadams is currently developing a comedic drama about autism that's going to be coming to Amazon. Wow. Based on an Israeli series called On the Spectrum. Wow. So that sounds really interesting. It's a topic that he has a very personal attachment to. I think also in that scene of Christina's (laughs) This is a much smaller point, but I liked how they worked in the detail of Max being afraid of fire. Yeah. uh, Because it's going to be important later on that he can't go into the school play because there are candles in the hall. And if that was the first time that it was revealed, it might feel a little convenient, like, oh, we got to get something to keep him out of there. So let's just say he's afraid of fire. And just a little bit of preparation in this earlier scene makes it feel true later. He can't go in. There's candles in the hallway. Oh, right. And Christina said earlier that he has a fear of fire. I agree. I thought a line like that was a perfect example of exposition that, yeah, just just done really naturally and for a purpose. And yeah. So if something doesn't feel a little maybe cheap later or like not earned. You mentioned earlier the scene with all four siblings together. Yeah. I really like that scene. It does feel like just a tad dramatically contrived, perhaps. Oh, they all converge here. But I think it shows a very believable chemistry between the four of them. I buy that they grew up together. Crosby feels like the biggest outlier, (laughs) perhaps. But I think he's definitely supposed to feel that way. I think so, too. I also thought it was wise of the show to have a scene with no spouses, no kids, if for no other reason than just to solidify the family tree in the viewers' minds. Agreed. Here are the four Braverman siblings. This is them. <laughs> no, I agree. It was it was a really well-done scene and, and, yeah, agreed about the chemistry. Such a small note. I kept thinking, it's interesting that Sarah's hair is so dark and that it was always going to be dark because Maura Tierney also has very dark hair. Everyone else has, like, sandy blonde hair. It doesn't matter, but... It was something I noticed. Huh. That is an interesting point. Yeah. Similarly, I wonder about Dax Shepard's accent. Oh, yeah. It seems like he has a, um, a sort of like Chicago area accent. I don't know if that's where he's from at all. Oh, Michigan hmm. is where he was born, at least. It feels like a kind of northern U.S. <laughs> dialect. And, like, and it seems pronounced. I'm like, none of the others seem to have that. But yeah, they still they have a natural chemistry together that I think feels real. I don't know. I'm just trying not to panic. I'm sure it's nothing. It's just... Adam, I'm I don't in a real pickle, man. Katie already tried to move up the date. you got to get me out of this engagement. Engagement? Oh, you're judgmental? You and Katie got engaged? Oh, what? Crosby and Katie got engaged. Okay, this is about the frozen sperm thing. I'm sorry, the what? How do you know that? Is there not any confidential male guy stuff anymore? I don't think so. Hi, crazy lady who yells at her sister from a date. Fine. 
I may have overreacted a little bit. Maybe. What was that about? Why are you here? Why is everyone here? Because this is Adam and Crosby time. I didn't invite them. <laughs> I love that. That really gives us a sense of who they are. I especially love the end. This is Adam and Crosby time. <laughs> yeah, no, that made me really happy. I love Adam and Crosby's dynamic. I kind of forgot how great that is, but it's so believable, them as brothers and... They kind of have a goofus and gallant thing going on, which I love. Yeah, there were a couple lines just randomly. I loved the delivery of several of them in this scene. One of them is... What happened to him being a fat, balding barista? I warmed to him. <laughs> yeah, that was fantastic. I warmed to him. I feel like she's like briefly in a warmed 40s melodrama or something. <laughs> Also in that same scene, I loved Peter Krause's delivery of... Uh, Hi, Seth. Seth, there was a winner. <laughs> <laughs> and that felt an, real. Yeah, and a nice little bit of character development. Like, yeah. yeah, Seth wouldn't be a stranger to all of them, and they would have an opinion about him, and <laughs> that he would just, under his breath, there's a winner. <laughs> Earlier, another one of Lauren Graham's that I really loved. This was a little bit more physical, but on her date with Jim, she asks, And so how long have you been in the caffeine game? It was the like the little gun, the gun <laughs> fingers. Yeah. And it, yeah. it kind of reminded me of you, actually. Really? I feel like it's something you might do. That makes me happy because I found that precious. <laughs> <laughs> so the, that's just a little fandom. That's my like Chris Farley. Hey, remember when you were in the Beatles? <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> there was one other line that I didn't love so much in this scene, which is Sarah's. He's in mother Fresno. It just <sighs> pulls me out of the scene a little bit. If you are on a network show and you can't curse, don't say mother frickin'. Just be like, oh my God, he's in Fresno. Can you believe it? Or something. Agreed. I had the exact same thought earlier when she called Julia and was like, and I have to go now because I'm on a freaking date. And maybe that's one's not as bad because mother freaking nobody says that. But yeah, it always draws my attention to it when you use a like curse substitute. I'm like, just avoid it altogether. It's a lot more natural. Unless the substitute itself is going to be revealing some essential character trait. Like Kathy Bates in Misery, she never curses. She'll call him a cock-a-duty. And there, the point is that she's not using curse words. Sarah would just say, he's in motherfucking Fresno. Yes, she absolutely would. She goes to get him, and we see Seth briefly. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say, this actor playing Seth, we will never see again. I did make a note that said, don't get too attached. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I feel like you see very little of him. He only has a few lines. He's in the episode so little that the fact that they recast him later on felt like not a terrible betrayal. Yeah, I agree. Let's talk about Drew and Sarah's little scene at the gas station. Oh, so good. You deserve a father. You deserve a great father. I shouldn't have married him. I'm really sorry. Oh, look at you. Look at you. You're almost a man. When did that happen? For what it's worth, you have me. 
I'm not going anywhere. And I'm really sorry, but that's gonna have to be enough, okay? Okay, two thoughts. Number one, that is so moving and beautiful. And two, I can't believe I didn't notice it when I was actually watching it, but Drew doesn't say anything in that scene. <laughs> I was remembering it as a scene really between the two of them. But I mean, he does initiate the hug, which is like, I guess, his way of communicating in that moment. And of course, he's crying and she's consoling him. So it makes sense. But it was kind of funny to realize just hearing it. Oh, that is totally one-sided. I took note. I said it's not it's acted well not only by Lauren Graham but also by Miles Heiser even though he's just listening. Yeah. I think it's so hard to portray teenage boys well. Mm, yes. Because they're often really tight-lipped and have kind of blank expressions. It's impossible to tell what they're taking in or what they're ignoring, what they're thinking, what they're feeling. And I would imagine that would be a huge challenge in raising them as their parent. And then from a dramatic standpoint, how do you take someone who's not letting you in and make them a compelling character? And I think that Miles Heiser, however he's doing it, is doing it really effectively. He doesn't feel like a TV teenager to me. He feels like an actual teenager. Oh, I agree. Um, You know, just, again, I'm a high school teacher, so I'm around kids all the time. And I find sometimes on TV or in movies, it's a little stereotypical the way that kids are. And man, I think Drew is not at all. Like, you know, I know a lot of kids who are just kind of quiet who are pretty sensitive, who are mostly sweet, but have put up walls, you know, and and are guarded and it's hard. I I don't know. There was just absolutely, I completely agree. feels like a real person. I also love that he has a little acne in this episode. I'm not sure if that continues or if they start covering it up or if it just goes away, but I loved it. I mean, it's very mild. But it just adds to the authenticity and makes it feel even more so like he's not a character on TV where they're often it's like an airbrushed 25 year olds. It's like, (laughs) no, when you're a teenager, you have acne. That's part of the experience. I definitely did. (laughs) There were now as for all the great things in this scene, I thought that it did feel a little like presentational, a little bit very special moment of the episode. Mm. Yeah. And it is something that I wonder once the show adopts that kind of looser camera style, if this is the kind of scene that then would come across more authentic and a little less staged. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. And this is not to fault the scene. I still think it's very moving. It just feels a little more typical than I think the show often does. Well, it's in the rain and it's, you know, like this very cinematic moment. Like, I wonder what would have happened if she'd noticed he was crying on the drive home, you know, and I'm not saying that would have been better, but it certainly would have been subtler and quieter. That's a really interesting point. What do you do when you can't drop everything and have a face-to-face, heart-to-heart with yeah. your son, but you still need to make him feel better? Yeah. It's a really interesting point. One of the last scenes is at a school play, which I again realized, hey, kind of a callback to the movie. Yeah, it totally was. It's outside of the school play, and uh, we get this nice scene between Zeke and Adam. Adam, what, what the hell are you doing out here? We're fine. Just go back in. You're going to miss the end. Max, come on, let's go inside. He can't go in. 
What? There are candles in the hallway. You can't walk past them. Oh, hell, that's ridiculous. I mean, all he's got to do is go by him. He's going to be fine. Max, come on, let's go inside. Dad, it's not that simple. It is that simple. Adam erased four kids. Dad, come there's on. something wrong with my son. There's something wrong. What do you mean? There's something wrong. And I'm going to need you to help me. Now, in case we weren't aware yet, Peter Krause is just incredible. Uh, and I sometimes think, especially on a show like this, men don't get those kind of overtly emotional scenes, which is such an obvious tool to kind of show what a great actor you are. Look at my crying scene. <laughs> and I, even though I think actors would maybe say, no, 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 it's not about the big crying scene. Yeah, it is on some level. <laughs> it's like that's where you really get to sort of pull out all the stops. And it's just a, yeah, anyway he really gets to show that side of him in a subtle and really believable way. And I find it so heartbreaking. Mm. Also, I found it in the commentary, that scene was shot the night that Nora O'Brien died. Oh, wow. And a friend of Peter Krause's, you'd said, right? Yeah. Oh, that's... Maybe that's it. But also, I think you just can't deny that he's, he's wonderful. And... Craig T. Nelson as well, but it was another one of those moments where you're kind of getting to meet the actor. Like, here's what this actor is going to be bringing to this series if you stick with it. And it's like, wow, I'll sign up. Oh, yeah. And I don't think there is a single weak link on this show. Like, it's something that I keep being really taken aback by almost. I'm like, everyone is good, you know, and you may not really get a powerhouse moment with every single character in this episode, but you know, there, there's no one you roll your eyes at. There's no one you're like, oh, this person isn't very good. You know, they really stick out. And, and, and no, I, I felt like even the guest actors, I thought Katie was great. You know, I thought everybody was really good. Yeah. My one quibble with that uh, scene I just played, the music under a little that dramatic. scene, it felt a little more on the nose or intrusive than my memory of parenthood in subsequent episodes will be. I took note of that as I was watching, but as we've been recording this podcast, several of the scenes I've played, I've noticed music underneath them, sometimes really beautiful music. I have no issue with the music itself, but it's been present in a way that at least my memory doesn't recall. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. In fact, I was curious. I didn't actually, I have to admit, notice it until you played it right here. I didn't notice it when I was watching it. So maybe there's something about isolating, you know, it just on its own too, that makes it more obvious, at least to me. But I was like, I wonder, since Caleb's the musician and I don't know much about music really, I was like, I wonder if Caleb thinks this is good or if he's like, this is a little melodramatic. Cause I was thinking, it feels a little melodramatic. So now I feel validated. Um, no. <laughs> well, and like I said, it's often not even about the quality of the music. I think the music that was playing was really nice. It was just how much does it call attention to itself? When does it enter the scene? Yeah. Those kinds of things that it's a, a tight line to walk. And I think it's something that changes depending on the kind of tone you're going for. So it, it certainly seems plausible to me that they might have started in this place and then eventually discovered, hey, we, we might be able to score a little less of this yeah. and still achieve what we're after. You know, speaking of music, um, I did think that 
the music overall was just so beautiful in this this pilot. Like I loved the song that started the show uh, when Adam's running. It was uh, and I looked that up. It was the Avit Brothers. I was really surprised by that because. Um, I, I don't know them a ton or else I guess I probably would have known that they sang that song. But um, I don't know. It sounded more upbeat than a lot of their music. And I thought it was perfect. It was just beautiful. And I loved the two different versions of Forever Young. And I was, you know, thinking we should do like an Us Weekly, like which Bob Dylan wore at best. I don't know. Like if you, <laughs> I don't know. But I, yeah, I thought, man, and that's one thing I do remember vividly from the last time I watched the show is I think the music is just often beautiful yeah well and i think i feel like my memory of the show is that it's much more often source music like music by an artist yeah. rather than original music underscoring the scene and so i wonder if that's what's catching my ear that this episode maybe features a lot of original music rather than oh in subsequent seasons there'll just be a song they've selected playing under this yeah i don't know we'll keep our eye out our ears out oh you uh, <laughs> <laughs> now there is one Braverman who we have uh, yet to meet. He comes in just under the wire. Aww. Hey. Hey. Jasmine. Uh-huh. Uh, well, uh, you look great. Yep. Thanks. <laughs> Indeed she does. Do you, uh, do you want to go in? Honey, come here. Oh, uh, who's this? That's Jabbar. Oh, hey, buddy. I'm Crosby. He wanted to meet his dad. He is, I mean, we've said this already. He's just adorable. So cute. I love him. And oddly, I think he looks instantly believable as Dax Shepard's son. Yeah. As they're standing there face to face. Uh, I thought, yeah, this plus this equals that. Buy it. <laughs> um, I find that scene so interesting for so many ways. Number one, I think we should notice how often Buddy gets used as a nickname in this show because that is something I noticed the last time I watched, like five years ago. I was like, everybody says Buddy all the time. And um, at the so time, did you already have your dog named Buddy? I don't actually th think I did. No, I've had him like three or four years. So I don't know why I noticed it. Obviously, that would make sense. But anyway, I just, I believe people say Buddy a lot and they do it on Friday Night Lights as well. And there's a character named Buddy. So it's funny. But anyway, so, but the bigger reason is I thought it was such an interesting way for Jasmine to do this. Do, like instead of telling Co Crosby ahead of time, it's like, he wanted to meet his dad. Now you're on the spot. I don't know. And I, I, yeah, wrote, I literally wrote down, is this the best way to tell an ex that they have a child? Yeah, maybe it is because it's like breaking up with someone in a public restaurant. Like they can't make a scene, you know, like he can't freak out because there he is. I, I don't know. Yeah. Do you think she was wrong for doing that or? I don't know if there's a right way to tell someone they have a child when you have kept that fact hidden for like five years. Yeah. I mean, I think she was wrong not to tell him. Five years ago? Five years ago. <laughs> Um, and I, I honestly forget what explanation we get in regards to that, but I'm sure it is forthcoming. I'm sure, yeah. I might buy this as a sort of like rip the Band-Aid off. Like, yeah. however you got to do this thing you should have done earlier, just do it. Mm -hmm. At this point, there's no right or wrong way. Yeah. But it did, I, I had the exact same feeling you did. of like, well, now he's really on the spot. And with the kid there. 
Yeah. I, I think that is what got me. Is that like he has to have a reaction that is okay for the child. Yeah. Not just, you know, if she had dropped by and said, I should have told you this five years ago, you have a child. Then he would have a little more license, I think, to have whatever reaction he was going to have. Yeah. And strangely, we don't get to watch any of it. Scene ends. Yeah, just cuts away. Um, and then we do get him sort of like getting into it with Adam later, like explaining this to him. And then it gets interrupted with Max wanting to go to the game. And that's how the whole thing ends. But I, I do kind of like getting that. Like, oh, this is not the sort of soap opera where Crosby doesn't tell anyone for a really long time. Like his first instinct is to tell his brother, like, whoa, <laughs> this just happened to me. And I, I really liked that. I don't know. It felt more believable and less like we're just going to keep others in the dark for the sake of a big secret. You know, I, I don't know. It feels like a recurring theme throughout this episode. Christina tells Adam about Max and she says, don't make me be alone with this. Yeah. He tells his father about Max and he says, I'm going to need your help. Yeah. Camille tells Sarah, you're staying here until you get on your feet. And then here at the end, Crosby's instinct is share this news with my brother. So it really, I think, is setting a really nice tone that this is a family that helps each other when they need help. Yes. They don't beg for help. They expect it. And, you know, I mean... Maybe this is too obvious to even bother talking about, but I do think it was a really smart choice for Crosby to find out that he was a father at the end of the episode rather than the beginning. So we really get to see his life as a single person, especially since um, his girlfriend wants to have a baby and the idea of having one is something he can't picture for at least another three years. And then all of a sudden, well, I had one five years ago. That's just a really fascinating position to put the character in when he then finds out that he has a kid. You know, we know exactly where he stands on the topic of fatherhood and it felt very natural for us to find out where he stood. It, it you know, it was just part of the organic story. In the scene you mentioned where they're having dinner or they're having lunch, it looks like, in Adam and Christina's backyard, the the whole, it's my team moment was another one that that felt to me just a little brazenly emotional yeah. in a way that the rest of the series, even though it's extremely emotional and arguably emotionally manipulative, <laughs> this that kind of moment feels different to me. It, it feels like, oh, this is a moment where they're expecting everyone watching to go, aww. And I feel like hmm, they don't really do that a lot yeah. after this. And especially after the first season, it feels like they're still searching for a tone they haven't quite nailed down yet. And this feels a little more, I guess I might say mainstream. It didn't really bug me at the time, but that now that we're talking about it, I don't really believe that Max would say, we've got to go to the game. It's my team. Like he made it really clear he didn't care about it at all. And I think we're really learning that Max cares what he cares about. And I think part of his whole situation is that he doesn't always pick up on like, social cues right like that that boy who says hi to max in the this a scene earlier and adam's like that boy said hi to you aren't you gonna say hi back he might think you're rude being rude and max just kind of looks at him like i you know that that's not really a concern of mine and i didn't think max was being rude but i did think that was a really honest moment for max and him saying it's my team felt like like less of an honest moment yeah like, like it maybe if there was an emotionally manipulative moment in the pilot i i do think that might have been it i agree at the game 
There's a little Jason Kadams cameo. There is? I didn't know until I watched with the commentary. But in that baseball scene, there's a shot right after you see kind of the whole family in the stands. You see just this little like tracking shot that goes past a guy. It looks like he's maybe packing up gloves into a sack or something. He's wearing a wolf's shirt, and that's Jason Kadams. Okay, I'm going to have to go back and watch that. That's so much fun. I love that. Yeah. And then the episode ends. <laughs> um, I looked up some of the reviews of the pilot episode. <laughs> if I had to characterize a theme, it seemed like a lot of backhanded compliments. Huh. So like New York Times said, Parenthood is unexpectedly compelling, even though it looks almost exactly like Brothers and Sisters on ABC. And the last line of their review, they had a weird like hybrid review of Parenthood and the marriage ref that Jerry Seinfeld, like it's not quite a game show, I don't think, but it was like a reality show sort of. Oh, I do not remember that at all. <laughs> but the last line of the review was uh, Parenthood isn't nearly as bad as it sounds. Ah, I don't think it sounds bad at all. What are you talking about? Um, the Boston Globe said it was a fairly promising ensemble dramedy. Variety said a credible dramedy with the misfortune of arriving after the similar and better modern family. It said a little muddled initially by its deluge of characters, the pilot settles down and locates welcome moments of humanity. That said, the whole ultimately feels like less than the sum of its parts. Jeez. Yeah, so it seemed like there was some like resist, like people didn't want to like parenthood. Just give in, it's so good. Time Magazine had probably the most flat out praise that I, that I found. Um, so parenthood shows a funny, affecting, distinctive voice that you'll want to keep listening to. A lot of shows about family lack confidence in their subject. They assume that viewers will get bored and tune out and so immediately load up the melodrama and over-the-top crises. To its credit, Parenthood doesn't. Oh, there are plenty of problems, drug issues, love issues, but in the grand scheme of TV, it's pretty small, real stuff. Kadams simply trusts that some strong performances, the right casting, and winning dialogue will keep your interest. It's the writing and the serious comic tone that manage that. Parenthood occupies a place on the comedy drama spectrum somewhere between Modern Family and 30-something, and it's a daring place to go, requiring actors who can sell the comedy while showing that their characters are joking as a way to deal with things that seriously matter to them. I like that. That feels like a real review of what the show isn't just in the pilot, but what it becomes. Yeah. felt like a very perceptive review. And it kind of reminds me that last line about actors who can sell comedy that reveals what's important to them. It reminds me of that Roger Ebert review of the film, that comedy yeah. can be more truthful than drama in certain ways, which is funny because I would not call the show a comedy, but I do think that comedy can do that. I completely agree. The review that I think most captured my take on this episode, although it was a little more skeptical. You know, I said a lot of these felt like backhanded compliments. The AV Club. I love the AV Club. They start out saying, I really would like to dislike parenthood. It's way, way too overstuffed. Almost everything about it is something you've seen elsewhere, often done better. And it's debuting after a Winter Olympics where NBC lost no chance at promoting the hell out of it at every turn. If you feel like you've seen the pilot already, I don't blame you. However, Parenthood has somehow navigated all of the pitfalls that took down the original pilot and found a tone that doesn't perhaps point to essential viewing, but does something that not a lot of shows on the air are doing right now. 
At its best, it's a funny and sad look at big family dynamics that has a keen ear for the way these things often go. Parenthood has a bad case of forcing the drama at several given moments, but it gives a rich sense that it's building a world here, a family that will be worth following from episode to episode. It's not a perfect series by any means, but it gives off a sense that very few other series give, a sense of being lived in. Ooh. I think she's way more wary of liking the show than I am, but the few reservations that I mentioned, like forcing the drama at some points. Yeah. I think those are valid. And it's like, yeah, I think that's what I'm thinking. And the reason I forgive it is because of what they point out at the end, which is that it does feel lived in, even right off the bat. Yeah, that's that's really well put. And, you know, maybe I'm, again, overthinking. That could be the subtitle of this podcast. <laughs> but it makes me wonder, um, are people sometimes reluctant to like things that aren't very edgy, you know, that are like sort of unabashedly hopeful and kind and sweet, you know, like maybe it can be compared to, you know, oh, corny sitcoms where that music does get pumped in and and people don't want to associate themselves with something that uncool, you know, and and so sometimes I wonder, like, is that why people get resistant to things like this? It's just not very cutting edge. And, And then I realize I'm not very cutting edge. My favorite shows are the ones that have a lot of heart and that uh, have characters who feel like real people. And that's kind of it. That's all I need, really. I don't need a gimmick. I don't mind a good gimmick, but I don't need it. I I just want good writing, good acting. That's it. You're making me wish I had quoted a really bad review I found, but I (laughs) I ultimately didn't write it down because I thought, eh, this isn't really saying anything I want to comment on. But now I'll paraphrase. I I think maybe it was The Hollywood Reporter, but this reviewer's thesis was basically, this show is too relatable. I don't want to think about my family when I'm watching TV. I get enough (laughs) of them in real life. And it was sort of saying, it's like, yeah, you always want authenticity, except in a family drama. That's when you want to give us something unexpected. And it's like, I just don't know that I agree. Although... I think maybe I understand where he's coming from. I've had a few friends who I recommended Parenthood to who just couldn't get into it. And I think, at least for some of them, that was sort of the issue of like, Mm. oh, it's just so much like real life that I'm, (laughs) I, I don't find the value in taking time out of my real life to experience it. I guess I could see that, but, um, Well, on the one hand, it's really nothing like my family. My family was much smaller. Less attractive. Less attractive. I think it's probably true of anyone's family just because television. (laughs) Yeah, television. Crazy. But yeah, my family also is not as overtly close. And and that's no diss. I, I have a good relationship with my mom and my brother, but we don't hang out all the time, you know, and it's not like, I mean, it feels like, Maybe it's just because this show is so stuffed that it just wouldn't be practical to give all of them friends outside of the family, too. But, like, my best friends aren't my family members. Although with you, your sisters are kind of your best friends, like, or at least some of them. They're among them. And so that's that's interesting. Um, But for me, it's just I, I love my brother very much, but we don't really hang out when it's not a family thing. Geography dictates so much. Like oh, I would true. I would say my sisters are some of my best friends and yet I don't see them very often. 
and I don't even talk to them all that often. We keep in touch regularly, but if I lived close to them, I think I actually would hang out with them quite a lot. Yeah, I think like, you would too. At least weekly. So interesting, but you're, you're right. I mean, here is an adult family, four grown kids, and now that Sarah has moved to Berkeley, they all live in the same town, and they live in the same town as the parents, you know? So that's, that's interesting. Although it does make you wonder, um, and perhaps this is stuff we'll get into later, perhaps not, but, you know, what about Joel's family? What about Christina's family? Like, sometimes I feel sort of bad for these in-laws. Like, they just spend all of their time with... <laughs> The Bravermans. And I wonder, does that ever, is that ever an issue? Is that ever a problem? Like, <laughs> so that's. Well, yeah. while you're raising that question, which I think is an interesting one, I mean, since this is the pilot, it's kind of the blueprint for this series. Is there anything that wasn't in it that you think, oh, it might have been an interesting blueprint if you made these sort of fundamental changes? If you want some examples, <laughs> like, I, I don't know that I would ultimately say like they should have done this instead but something i wondered i'm gay i thought what if one of these families had same-sex parents mm. i don't think that that would have been out of character at all yeah for a berkeley family and how might that have changed the family dynamics or what it means to be a parent yeah uh, i also wondered largely because i was going to be discussing it with you and because i don't have children either what if one of the kids didn't have children and had chosen not to have children? It might seem counterintuitive when the show is called Parenthood. That's what it's about. <laughs> but I think it might have provided some nice contrast and some, some things to explore. How do you date? If, you know, if it's, let's say it was a single person who knew they didn't want to have kids. How do you date if you know that that's not something you're looking for? How do you relate to your siblings who do have children? How do you relate to their children? How do you relate to your parents who maybe want grandchildren? It seems yeah. like, oh, that's just never going to be something that they can explore because right off the bat, everyone has kids. Yeah, even the one you think doesn't, Crosby. Oh, nope, he does. Uh, actually, it's kind of funny. You, I hadn't even really thought about the the kid one. I wish I had, you know, because th I think that would be so interesting if one of them had chosen not to. I, I think that's not really explored much um, in, in TV or movies, and I wish it were. I think it's a really interesting decision, you know, and it gives you a lot more control over your life. Um, and I don't know, I think there's a lot worth telling with those kinds of stories, but I feel like you don't see them that much. And now that you mention it, this show, much as I love it, I love it so much, I don't mean this as a knock, but it does seem to present sort of one idea of love and success, you know, and it's like marriage and, and children. It's very traditional, you know, like even Julia, who is so successful at work, you get the sense right away, right from the pilot, that her main obstacle is going to be, you need to figure out that work is, is only work. It's not as important. You know, how I think it would be very believable if Julia and Joel didn't have a kid, you know, and, and maybe their conflict would be that the higher up she was getting at work, the more she maybe didn't want one. And he was like, we always said we would, you know, like, wouldn't that be interesting? I never really thought about one of the Braverman siblings being gay and like in a same sex relationship. But I always wondered, like, what if one of the kids were gay? <laughs> you know, like that would be a really interesting thing to explore. And uh, yeah, it, it does seem strange that at least right now, it seems as though everyone on the show is straight. Um, kind of fascinating. Yeah. And too bad. 
Was it just that they were guided by the movie, you know, like, like that could very well be, which is dated, you know, it's 20 years, 21 years, I guess, before the show premiered different time. Yeah, that certainly could be. Or as we mentioned earlier, one of the uh, Braverman couples could certainly have been interracial. Yeah. Heck, I mean, Zeke and Camille could have been interracial. Oh, my gosh. That would have been really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it obviously would have dictated a lot of casting decisions, but um, certainly would have been interesting. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on the pilot overall? Oh, overall, I really loved it. And I was really struck. I know we've talked a little bit about like finding its tone, finding its way, etc., But for the most part, while I was watching it, I thought, this just feels very strong right off the bat. I thought everyone did have good chemistry. I thought it was incredibly well written. And I mean, maybe it's just because I came into it already knowing who all of the characters were. I wonder if I was confused the very first time I saw it, which is when it premiered. But, you know, I thought they did such a great job of introducing everybody and and showing how they related. I, I loved it. What about you? It was stronger than I remembered. I think I thought, oh, the pilot's a little clunky, a little finding its feet. It is a little finding its feet, I think, but only probably in light of having seen the rest of the series. Yeah. The basics of the characters and the family dynamics feel incredibly well established. And I thought it was nice that there were some stories in this pilot episode that were so clearly going to immediately start delivering more stories like Max is diagnosed with Asperger's or not diagnosed, but they think he might have Asperger's. Oh, okay. That's That's going to be addressed in the next episode, right? It must be. Or boom, Crosby has a child. There's only three minutes left in the episode. Okay. (laughs) We'll deal with this later. More to come. (laughs) <laughs> the cast is just so excellent. They really are. Across the board. I thought it felt like this episode belonged mostly to Sarah and Adam. Mm-hmm. And then Zeke's presence, even though I don't think he took up a lot of time, his presence felt very clear. And the ways in which he was going to be interacting with things felt present. I thought Crosby and Julia felt a little more in the background and the same with Joel and with all of the kids. Mm-hmm. And that I think there's just not enough time. Yeah. It, to me, I think Camille felt like the most underserved in the pilot. It felt like there wasn't really much of an indication of the depth that is going to eventually be there. I feel like she got kind of shortest shrift. Although, you know, I was also struck by how beautiful she was. I was like, oh, man, she's yeah. just gorgeous. Like, yeah. Like, Wow. Uh, and, and somehow more beautiful than when she was like in Die Hard, you know, decades ago. I was like, you are just stunning. Anyway, I, I was just continually distracted by how good looking this cast is. It's yeah. just like most And TV she casts. also felt, I mean, I haven't been to Berkeley, never spent any time in Berkeley. She felt Berkeley to me just in her hairstyle and her wardrobe. And it, it somehow felt like, oh, yeah, this is especially compared to like the mom in the parenthood film. You get no who was sense dressed of her. So like 1950s St. Louis wardrobe. Yeah. It's like, ah, this is a different kind of matriarch, even though we get like two minutes with her. Yeah, no, totally. Well, and, and speaking of differences between the pilot and the show, the movie um Zeke man so different from Frank you know I mean yeah you get the sense that he's tougher they still have that dynamic where he's more like you know come on face your fears I noticed people kept telling him to dial it back (laughs) they were like dial it back by 80 dial it back by simmer simmer 
Yes. <laughs> but he was also, I mean, very warm in ways that Jason Robards, you know, Frank in the movie was not. Um, you know, he picked up the kids from the police station and was like, I'll make some coffee. You know, that was his comment when he was driving Sarah and Amber. Like they get home and he's like, I'll make coffee. He wasn't like, Amber, how dare you? I invite you into my home. You know, nothing like that. It was uh, really lovely the way that he went to all of Max's games. I think that Frank only showed up to Kevin's game when he needed advice from Gil. It wasn't about going to the game, you know? So it was like, I just noticed he was really involved in, in ways that Frank wasn't. Yeah. I noticed on Hulu where I watched this episode initially. Me too. That the pilot was 50 minutes long. And typically hour long shows, when you take out the commercials are like 42 or 43 minutes. And so it made me wonder if when this episode aired, if they simply let it run long or if they cut stuff from the broadcast version. And if they did, I'm really curious as to what they cut. Yeah, me too. That's a good point. But yes, a very exciting episode to entice us with what's to come, I think. And hopefully that's true of our show as well. <laughs> yes, we can hope. We've got 102 more of them. Woo! I'm excited. I'm so happy to be doing this with you. I am too. When we had been discussing this so much and then we watched the movie, it felt like there was so much buildup to the actual TV show that when I finally got to watch the pilot, I was like a kid at Disneyland. It's like, it's Aww. here. It's finally here. I know. I feel the same. And then actually watching it, it makes me so excited to work through the rest of the series. It's going to be so fun to just talk about every episode with you. I'm, I love it. And as you mentioned off mic, hard to restrain ourselves from just <laughs> watching several in a row. I know. But it's good to slow down. Yeah, I think some disciplined watching is advisable. Agreed. Yeah. And in I, you know, I used to do this all the time, and I think I maybe loved those shows more—the ones that I lived with from week to week and really thought about, and I looked forward to watching the next one. And I, you know, it wasn't just like that instant gratification that we have now. Parenthood is probably one of the last series that I started and watched all of as it actually aired. I didn't come to I it did late. I watched the very first episode. And yeah, I remember the anticipation of waiting for each episode each week, which is just a sensation that is a little foreign now. Which I think is kind of too bad, you know? I think there's something nice about looking forward to something. And maybe it's very appropriate that we have to sort of slow down to do this podcast and watch this during a pandemic where much of what we're doing is looking forward to things, you know, <laughs> looking forward to eating in restaurants and flying to New York and, and seeing you in person again and having a know, job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot. Yeah. Seeing my students in person, you know. Yeah. There's a lot to look forward to. And, and so this just feels right in so many ways. Yay. Yay. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Parenthood Pals. Thank you for joining us. Please like us on Facebook, Parenthood Pals, and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Parenthood Pals. You can also connect with us on our website at parenthoodpals.com. Until next time, may God bless and keep you always. And may your wishes all come true.